hopefully this is all working. Uh, last week we had a power outage, which was fantastic, but hopefully we'll, we won't have as many technical issues this time, our second episode. Hello and welcome to the second ever Scripts and Scribes live, live stream show. Uh, we're fortunate to have on two guests today who are going to talk about getting that first job staffing in a TV writer's room. Uh, we're joined by a writer, producer, and showrunner whose credits include NCIS New Orleans, The Librarians, and Leverage. He also wrote the big-budget sci-fi disaster film Geostorm, but his most under-the-radar and underappreciated work may be as an in-demand stand-in for actors such as Nicolas Cage, Kristen Slater, James Spader, Don Johnson, Tommy Lee Jones, among many others. He is Mr. Paul Dio. Thank you for joining us, Paul. Thank you. That's probably the best introduction I've ever received on anything I've done. Uh, and also joining us today is TV writer from Netflix's Warrior Nun, who's also served as a writer's assistant, showrunner's assistant, and PA on various shows such as Revenge, Famous in Love, The Bold Type. He's also a freelance writer who has written for Complex, The Daily Dot, VH1, and many, many more. He is Brendan Gallagher. Thanks for coming on, Brendan. Hey, it's so great to be here. I wish I could say I uh, stood in for men half as handsome as Paul has, but uh, haven't had the pleasure. <laughs> yet. Yet, right? That's how good I was. It's because I didn't look anything like those guys and yet still stood in. <laughs> and if you haven't heard the previous podcasts for both of these gentlemen, they are on scriptsandscribes.com. Uh, we talk about a lot of great stuff. And so you can go back and listen to those as well if you are at all interested. Our topic for today is going to be breaking into the TV writer's room, which if you are interested in writing TV, obviously that is probably going to be the most difficult hurdle you'll have to reach until you reach maybe a showrunner, <laughs> probably, my guess. Um, but before we jump into our main topic, we like to, you know, bring up and, and chat about a little bit of industry news for the week, uh, just for a couple minutes, and then we'll get into uh, all talking about writer's rooms and how to get in. And then we'll open it up to questions for everybody who is here watching us live. You're going to ask whatever questions you may have for either Paul or Brendan. So news-wise, obviously not a ton is going on right at the moment, but I gotta be honest, I didn't realize that the Golden Globes were tomorrow. Uh, I, I knew they were soon, and nominations and everything, um, but the Golden Globes are tomorrow, hosted by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, who I love, um, airing on NBC, I guess. Uh, according to reports, supposedly presenters are gonna be on stage instead of via teleconferencing so that should be kind of interesting um although i guess winners have the option of receiving their awards at home and they are all sent some sort of kit with cameras and webcams or whatever so i wanted to bring up to our guests um thoughts on the event or the nominees brendan paul go ahead <laughs> well you know I, I the golden glows are always funny to me because uh on twitter everyone's like there's some article every year that's like can you believe that these are corrupt and i'm like oh i'm clutching my pearls uh the hollywood foreign press is illegitimate uh no but you know i think uh i i don't think too much about them because it is like 80 european guys and they kind of nominate whoever you know gives them the nicest goodie bags uh for awards but i think it's fun and i think sometimes it has some predictions for like a film or a you know something that or an actor that you wouldn't think is going to get an oscar nomination that does you know but other than that i'll just wait until the academy announces their stuff to get excited yeah i got <clears throat> my my golden globes uh bubble was burst on my very first staff job which was 
a show called Felicity, which J.J. <clears throat> Abrams created. And he told us, he's like, yeah, Carrie Russell's going to get nominated for a Golden Globe. And we're like, oh, how do you know? And he's like, well, because the Golden Globes are whoever throws the Hollywood Foreign Press the best party and however much money you spent. And he actually listed like the other people that were going to be nominated that year. And he was exactly right. And uh, and then ever since then, any any time I've I've connected with anyone, you know, dialed into the Golden Globes, they say, yeah, yeah, it's it's basically you pay them a lot of you give them the big goodie bag, as Brendan said, or you throw them a fabulous lunch and then they nominate you. <laughs> uh, well, but if anyone from the Hollywood Foreign Press is out there, I would not turn down a nomination uh, if it would be an honor to be considered. <laughs> yes. That's good I'll be know. happy to send you an autographed copy of Geostorm if you uh, nominate, you know, <laughs> Brendan's Warrior Nun for, for best show. Oh, um, so are there any films or shows you thought got overlooked? Any surprises? Anything? I didn't watch much in 2020. You, Brendan? Me either. Um, you know, I, I watch a lot uh, because I was stuck inside. And I would say for me, I won't get into like snubs is always funny to me because like, what, what does that even mean? But uh, for me, the best shows of the year were pen 15 and what we do in the shadows. And I believe mm -hmm. they didn't get nominated. So for me, uh, it's ridiculous. However, on the drama side, I do think better call Saul did. And to me, that's the best drama on TV. Um, yeah. And on the movie side, you know, I am still catching up on all the award season stuff, but they held back so much at the studios this year that I think some stuff that maybe wouldn't have made noise is making noise. And on one hand, I'm, I'm happy for that. On the other hand, I think it's more of a flawed field than usual. But um, for me, awards are good because they shine lights on things that you may not be considering. But I think it's sort of ridiculous to be like this amazing show or uh, movie didn't get nominated. I'm upset because, you know, the history, all the greatest things in history didn't win. Uh, very many Oscars or Emmys for the most part. And so I think you're almost better off not being recognized, getting articles written about how you were snubbed, and then history remembers you. So I think I May Destroy You will be remembered more fondly because everyone is talking about it as the great show that wasn't recognized. Right. Yeah, I think um, I watched, like my favorite thing I discovered in 2020, and I have no idea what's been nominated. I honestly, I have no idea. So you guys will have to tell me, but like I fell in love with Ted Lasso. Right. In 2020, that was just, it was great. that just gave me joy. It was like, I, I was so, I feel like comedy especially has been trending towards this. Let's go edgier and darker and, and more cynical because that's how everyone feels. And that's, what's funny. And Ted Lasso just, I think proved to everyone that you can have a show with all good characters. Even the bad characters are good and just total optimism throughout. And it's still hilarious. Right. And it did get two nominations, which I think is fantastic. Did it? Okay. Yeah. See, I don't even know. So good on Ted Lasso. <laughs> I guess the only surprise, I wouldn't say it's a snub, it was a surprise that it actually did get nominated. And I love Sasha Baron Cohen, but uh, what was it? Subse Borat subsequent movie film got nominated? That's a that's a, that's a luncheon thrown to the, for the Hollywood Foreign <laughs> Press. I guarantee you that's, Sasha is locked in with the Hollywood Foreign Press. <laughs> And again, I love Sasha Baron Cohen, but for it to get a, a, a nomination for Best Motion Picture uh, was a little bit surprising for me. Uh, I got to be honest with you. Um, I used to be, before I became a paid 
writer. Uh-huh. I, you know, I was one of those people that I had the Oscar party every year and I was all about it. And I could tell you the best picture winners from 1950 through, you know, 1995 or whatever. And then once I, I saw behind the curtain, once I got into the industry and, and realized so many of this, you know, you're, you get these screeners and you're supposed to watch everything. So then you can make an objective decision. And, you know, nobody watches more than what? 20%, maybe 30% max of what, of all the stuff that you get. And it's all, art is so subjective. And so it's really always just been bizarre to me to have competitions. Like this performance was better than that performance. Like mm-hmm. if you're gonna do that, have everyone play the same role, have everyone write the same screenplay, have everyone direct the same movie and then decide. I agree with Paul 100%, but I'm sort of like the kid who knows Santa's not real, but still leaves cookies out at this point. Like, I still love doing the Oscar party. Uh, My wife and I love competing over, like, who's going to get it right. And I think part of the joy is, like, once you are in the business and you watch something just, like, it's complete garbage win and you see how, like, fake it is or you know, once in a while you get a moonlight and you're like, wow, like for everything that's so stupid about this industry, the actual good thing won, you know? So I I still like it, but I totally get that it's a... Yeah. Um, Okay, moving on then, because the Golden Globes, hopefully we'll have, we'll be able to make fun of the winners. No, I'm just kidding, next week. Um, So breaking into the writer's room, that's something that... TV writers, uh, emerging writers, I should say, are all looking to do who are those of who are interested in writing for television. Um, you've both done it. You've both been a part of staffing seasons, both worked in the writer's room. Uh, I know Brendan in multiple capacities. And Paul is an upper level. You've been on, you know, I'm sure sat in on numerous showrunner meetings from both sides of the table. So... I wanted to talk to you guys about your differing experiences and both of your POVs uh, should come in handy here. Um, first, let's talk about writer's rooms in general. For those, we're going to start off sort of at the beginning and uh, for those who may be less familiar, um, maybe Paul, you could explain what is a writer's room? Why do TV shows have so many writers working in a group when feature writers tend to write solo or unless they have a partner or something? what why do tv shows have a writer's room well it's just the amount of work you know a, a feature writer writes one script which is you know just say it's 120 pages it's a two-hour movie and that's it whereas in television one hour television where i've spent the vast majority of my career you know say those are 55 60 page scripts you know even though they're probably 50 or less now but you're basically then shooting a feature film every two weeks, you know, we get seven or eight days to shoot our episode and then you're right into the next episode. And so that machine, once the train leaves the station, it never stops until you're at the end of your, whatever your season is, or you get canceled. So it's just the, you know, the, the room full of writers simply started as volume because you, you know, the, the shows where you've seen lately, especially with streaming where one person writes everything that's, it's it's not the traditional format. It's not. It's somebody that wrote all those scripts before production even began, and so then they just shot them through. But but the original reason, you know, writers' rooms were born out of comedy shows and live shows where you had them 
telling jokes, your show of shows and all that. And, uh, and it's just basically because of the amount of work that, you know, it's, it's, in, it's impossible for one person to do unless you change the format, like I said. Mm -hmm. And Brendan, so maybe you could explain a little bit about what goes on in a writer's room, because the, the sort of general conception from people who don't work in the industry yet uh, is that, okay, you each just go off and write your own episode. You know, you're all in the writer's room. There's a bunch of writers. Okay, you'll write episode one, you'll write episode two, you'll write episode three. Now go off and write your own episode, and then we'll come back and we'll film them. Right. So, well, I think the most important thing to note as we start here is uh, drama and comedy function differently. And, like, one of the most uh, informative uh, seminars I ever had when I was a writer's assistant, we had, like, a skills training. And a comedy writer's assistant ran the skills training and kind of showed drama writers' assistants, like, how their room works. So... I'll first talk about my experience as a drama um, assistant and writer, and then I'll talk briefly about how comedy is different. Mm -hmm. So in a drama room, you have usually six to eight writers, and you meet maybe four to eight hours a day, depending on how your showrunner likes to work, because some showrunners like don't want to meet too long, and they want to go do their own thing and write. Some want to just work like a nine to five. And you sit and you spend a couple weeks like blue skying, as they say, ideas like what the hell are we doing with this show? And then you start to break episodes as you break episodes. And we feel like something's good. The writer of that episode goes to outline uh, or sometimes a story area, meaning like a one page. Hey, studio or network, here's what we're going to do. Then you go to outline. Then the outline comes back. We talk about it. Then you go off by yourself to episode and then you shoot that episode. So it's a uh, individuals are kind of guiding their episodes forward through the process. And the group is helping that individual to shape and form them into a cohesive unit that fits into the broader season. Uh, what's cool about that is an assistant is sometimes late in the season, half the room is out working on their episodes and you get to like have the chance to shine with the showrunner and be like, I'll help you figure out episode seven. Now on a comedy room, uh, at least the ones that my friends and peers have been in is it's a total group effort throughout to the point that they'll like project on the wall the script and write jokes together uh, throughout and kind of like the name on the episode sometimes isn't necessarily the biggest contributor because a lot of it happens in the room. And as a result, those hours can be nightmarish. Like Community, for example, is legendary for having like 16 hour days and even like a good boss in comedy could keep you 10 to 12 hours whereas i've been on a half a dozen drama shows and you never work more than eight hours in a day not because it's like they're lazy or something but because a drama writing i think can be a more individualized process and b the showrunner has so many aesthetic concerns because you're not shooting on a stage you're probably doing stuff on location or you're figuring out multiple uh places you're going to shoot things like that and so they would love to not be in the room like all the time so that's like a rough thing and maybe paul has some stuff to add but that's kind of how the nuts and bolts work from my experience i think that's all absolutely accurate and what i will say in addition in comedy uh not necessarily part of the room but when you're shooting uh especially for multicam like they'll be writing jokes and working on jokes while you're shooting and not to say that you don't change things in drama but it's it's interesting to watch uh a TV sitcom, especially multicam work, where they'll shoot it as written, 
and the showrunner will be like, mm, that didn't really work for me. And then literally 20 writers all huddle up while the audience is sitting in, in the bleachers watching, and they're just rifling out ideas, jokes, ad, you know, riffing for five, ten minutes. And then the actor will read it all, you know, the best five or six of the uh, punchlines or the different jokes that the writers have written. And then if they're a really good comedian, then they may riff on their own and do a few more, and then whatever is ends up getting the most laughs or whatever the showrunner liked the best will end up in the actual cut. So, I mean, they're, you know, writing on the spot too. So uh, that's exactly why what you're, what you're saying and what Brendan said is when I, when I first began my career, um, like you had said at the opening, I'd been a stand in for a long time. And when I had written spec scripts back when spec scripts were a thing, you wrote a spec of a existing show, which I, I don't recommend doing that anymore. Um, but I didn't know, anything about the difference between comedy and drama. So I had like three spec sitcom scripts and I had two spec drama scripts. And I went around and met with agencies and it came down to, uh, to Gersh and ICM and ICM was wanted me for my comedy scripts. And they were like, comedy writer, comedy writer. And Gersh wanted me for my one hours. And I didn't know the difference. And then it was the reason I went with Gersh and went down the, the one hour road was because it was explained to me by an agent there that exactly what we're saying, that if you're in a comedy room on a comedy show, especially a sitcom, a multicam, it's just best joke wins. No matter whose name is on the script, it's a communal group effort on anything. One hour is much more like screenwriting where you get to go. And, and even if, you know, David Kelly completely rewrites you or whoever, it, it's still you, it's more like being a writer. And that's literally why I made the choice to go one hour. Hmm. Interesting. Um, now I want to talk about, we've, we've talked about writer's rooms and what they are. So we have a sort of, everyone has the same understanding uh, if they didn't before. Now let's talk about breaking in. Now, Paul, you've broken in in a different way than Brendan, but I'd love to get both of your perspectives on that. First off, maybe you can just explain briefly uh, how you individually broke in and got your first writing job for those who may not have listened to the previous podcast. So, Paul, uh, maybe you could start. Yeah, I um, mine was a long time ago. I, I definitely think that the, that Brendan's way is the best way. <laughs> Now, uh, I think the fastest track to um, getting becoming a writer on a, on a television show is, is a writer's assistant script coordinator. My path was I came to Hollywood from from college not knowing anything like my scripts were literally written on spiral notebooks when I got to town. Like that's how much I knew. And so I started working as a stand in and originally just to make money. And then I discovered that was like the best kept secret in Hollywood that you know, a 12 hour, a standard 12 hour shooting day on a film, a stand in works maybe three, four hours. And the rest of the time, you know, you can be hanging out in the back with the background. But what I did is I stayed around Video Village and I listened to the director talking to the actors, talking to the DP about the how to tell the story. And if the writer was lucky enough to be on set, I listened to those conversations. And uh, that was a huge education. But again, it came down, I got my, my first gig strictly through connections. I didn't have a manager. I didn't have an agent. I was writing these specs. Um, I handed my spec to somebody that knew somebody that was an assistant to someone else. And so it just got passed around like that. And, and that led to, to my first two jobs. Like I, my first two gigs, I didn't even have representation. 
So that's uh, that was my way in, which is, again, it came down to those relationships, which I think Brendan's story is much, much uh, more, uh, just a better way to go. Well, you know, but I, I think there are some similarities uh, between our stories. And one thing I wanted to hit on that Paul said is he didn't have representation for his first couple gigs. And I didn't have representation until about six months ago. And we can get deeper into that. But I see on Twitter a lot this obsession with querying agents and managers. And I think sometimes that's putting the cart before the horse, because if you don't have any relationships, you don't have any heat and you don't have any industry connections, what that manager can do for you is gonna be limited. And we can dig into that more later on, but I just wanted to kind of shine a light on that, that both people on this panel had that same experience. And so uh, to rewind for me, uh, my journey began in New York City where I moved after college where I thought I'm going to be the next great indie filmmaker. And I started working on indie shoots as a PA, you know, driving box trucks through Chinatown in New York City, doing location scouts in Harlem, like maybe like the toughest choice to make to come up and film. And pretty quickly, I realized that uh, directing indie films, uh, in my opinion, is largely about how much money your parents have or how much money someone else's parents have. Uh, and so my friends were getting work as assistants in L.A. And this is like, you know, 2000, the, te the 2000 teens kind of. And that was when like web series were really happening in Broad City sold and High Maintenance sold and Insecure sold. And I was like, I got to go to L.A. This is where it's happening. TV is going to be the thing. And also like Mad Men and Breaking Bad were on. And I was like, wow, TV is going to be the best thing forever. And it, it, yes and no uh, since then. But so I moved to L.A. and uh, took me about a year to get a job as a post-production assistant on the show Revenge because someone I had acted with in theater school uh, was the post supervisor over there. So I knew someone. Um, and every day, uh, luckily, uh, the editors and the writers were in the same building, which I would say, like, the one thing I can tell you, if you can't get a writer's room assistant job, get a job assisting someone in the same building as the writers and then go out from there as like, how close can I get? Uh, like agency desks are one of those things people do now because it's like one step away from knowing writers. Mm -hmm. And so every day I would go down, come in like an hour and a half early, have a cup of coffee and just hope someone in the writer's room would walk by and I'd be like, oh, hey, I brought you your DVD the other day because we had DVDs, you know, back then. And uh, that led to one of the assistants there getting me my first office PA gig. I was promoted to writer's PA on that show called Heartbeat. Uh, and then from there, someone from Revenge got me my showrunner's assistant job on a show called Famous in Love. Then someone from Heartbeat remembered me for the writer's assistant job on The Bold Type. And then someone from The Bold Type got me my writer's assistant job on Warrior Nun, which is where I finally staffed. And so again, going back to what Paul said, it's all about making those personal connections that then you can leverage into uh, an opportunity. And obviously, your writing has to be good because the studio is not going to sign off on you, even if they vouch for you, if you can't write because they this is a money-making business. Obviously, you need to be nice and work hard and whatever, but you are going to have to find a way to like make some personal connections. And the good news is that's just a matter of like moving to Los Angeles and meeting people in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. but that is an essential component of making it happen for you. Right. Uh, Kara R. asked a question in the chat, which we will get to in just a few minutes. Um, first, we're just covering uh, different ways to get in uh, and getting advice from our two panelists. Um, Paul, uh, 
maybe you can actually or brenda i mean you've both been on in showrunner meetings even if it's been on the interviewing side uh, i'm sure that that helps as well um what in your opinion uh we'll start with paul what makes a writer stand out both on the page and in the room uh you know for an emerging writer when when a newer writer sits down in that chair when they hand in you know obviously when you're meeting with them that you've they've impressed you on the page but like when you're reading a script for the first time what impresses you and then when they're sitting in that room opposite you what impresses you yeah um and look i'm still you know my when i got co-ep on ncis new orleans i took had to take a showrunner meeting you know just like staff writers do like it's still all the same thing for me what stands out in the writing, especially now more than I think any time in, in history, or at least in my career, is voice, is an original voice. You know, there are so many, there's an entire industry out there um, devoted to trying to convince emerging writers that there's some secret to screenwriting and that you, you know, you've got to save a cat or you've got to, you know, go on this hero's journey or you've got to do this or and all these people that are charging you money to tell you this, none of them are screenwriters. Um, no matter what they tell you, they're not. They're, they may have failed at it, but they're not. And what happens when you adhere to those, and this is what I see in, in so many scripts, is that you may have a script that's technically perfect in structure and format, but it sounds exactly like the other 50 scripts on the pile that have read those same books and taken those same seminars. Whereas somebody that that just brings their own voice and is just writing a story from their heart and their passion and not worried about, you know, page, you know, 10 and the inciting incident and this second plot point of act two and all that garbage. That's what stands out to me. You know, I can teach someone format and I can teach someone that structure is not something that you write well. It's something that happens because you wrote well. It's which a lot of people don't understand. Um, and so that's just voice, original writing, original characters, you know, the whole thing about you got to grab them in the first few pages. What grabs me is great writing, you know, and, and just telling a, a, a compelling story. And then in, in the meetings, I was just talking about this um, on a clubhouse room the other day in for me, and I think a lot of showrunners that I know and have talked to is authenticity and self-awareness. Like, like you said, Kevin, you got the job, you got the meeting because they read you. Mm-hmm. And so you're writing past the, the toughest hurdle. So when you're in there, you know, we writers in writers rooms, you tend to spend more time with writers than you do your own family, even on the, on the eight hour shows as Brennan was talking about. So the, the meetings really to make sure you're not an ax murderer and that you're somebody that would be okay to hang out with five days a week for a lot of time. And it's what writers, especially showrunner level writers and stuff, we can spot um, falseness a mile away. And somebody that's trying to say the right things and trying to, you know, give the right answers as opposed to somebody that comes in just completely real. You know, if I got, going back to Felicity, I mentioned earlier, the whole reason that JJ hired me is when I got that meeting with him, um, he asked me what I thought of the show. And I told him that sometimes Felicity annoys the hell out of me. And that I think she's, you know, a a character that just bugs me and gets in other people's business when she shouldn't. And I, and I just kind of went off. Um, 
And JJ was like, oh my God, that's exactly how Matt and I feel. He goes, no one ever says that. They just come in telling us how great the show is. I love that. And he and I started riffing for like five minutes in the showrunner meeting about what you could do to correct that in, in her character. And that's why I got the job. And so I'm not saying go in and trash somebody's show because I obviously, I didn't do that, but I'm saying just be real. Just be the most authentic representation of who you are. Um, and that's that's gonna make you stand out, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll echo some of that. And obviously, you know, I've not been on the other side of that table and, and Paul has, but uh, I think he said a lot of things that resonate with me. Um, on Warrior Nun, uh, which is a very much like an action, kick-ass genre, fantasy, sci-fi, horror kind of thing, uh, I write not that. I would say I my influences are like Taylor Sheridan, Noah Hawley, uh, Peter Gould, Better Call Saul, like dusty kind of stuff. I'm from a small town. I write very rural, political kind of stuff. But again, uh, I think that comes through in my work. I think I present that clearly. And when a showrunner is putting a room together, they're putting together like a basketball team and not everybody can play center, you know? So we had people in the room when I was a writer's assistant, like David Hayter, who wrote the X-Men movies, the, the older ones, uh, Suzanne Keeley, who's a big time horror writer. She was on Ash vs. Evil Dead and like every horror show she's on. Uh, Sheila Wilson, who's kind of a younger writer who just came off a Marvel show. And so the showrunner, I think, felt, well, you know, Brendan's kind of like A24, hell or high water sensibility. Like someone's got to think about the like dialogue scenes where you know we want to do like a before sunrise kind of thing and brennan can think about that while the other writers are thinking about like how can we do this thing like mission impossible but different and so if you don't have an identity as a writer a showrunner is not going to be able to place you on the team mm -hmm. that way and think about your strengths so don't try to write to what you imagine the center is or what the business wants write to what your heart says and what you're good at and then i think the business will come to you I think that's such a great point, Brendan. That's 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 just such a great point. Yeah. Yeah, and for writers out there who may feel they're stronger in certain areas or they have quote-unquote weaknesses, obviously you need to be a competent, talented writer to get into the room. That's generally generally speaking uh, a, a commonality. But, for example, if you're really really good at dialogue but maybe structure isn't your strong suit uh or you're good at problem solving or plot you know fixing plot holes or if you're good at uh revising and editing i mean everyone has a different role some people are from what i understand have gotten staff because their writing is is pretty good but they're really good on set and they know what the showrunner wants in terms of their vision or they're really good in post and not to say that they're again can't pull their weight in the writer's room or they can't pull their weight you know uh, when delivering a script but their specialty is something completely different and you know as you guys are saying you sort of one you shouldn't feel discouraged if oh well maybe i'm not as strong a dialogue writer but man can i write an action scene that shouldn't deter you from focusing on what you're really good at and making the best darn action scripts you can, because if you're really, really great at something, uh, it, it'll get noticed. And that's sort of it's what Brendan said. Yeah, it's yeah. what it's Brendan's now. It's assembling the basketball team. Yeah, and it's, and it's that. And so again, that that just goes to don't try to chase the market or write to what you you know don't don't go into a meeting with a NCIS you know showrunner 
if you're a total character person and try to pretend you're a procedural person, you know, I mean, I got that gig specifically because I didn't have one procedural, you know, speck of, of my original stuff. It's all character, mm -hmm. hardcore. And even though that show is still a very specific formulaic procedural, they brought me in because, oh, this guy's good with character and dialogue. I didn't get a chance to show that because once you're in, you have to be part of what, sure. you know, the machine is. But that's how I got the job was because of exactly what you're both saying. Right. And I know a showrunner who had told me he hires this other writer who's great. I mean, the writer is fantastic. Such a great guy uh, all the time because he's the one guy that can solve every problem. Like you have writers in the room who will be constantly throwing out ideas and you have writers that are literally throwing out a, an idea a minute. Now, granted, one out of every 50 ideas is actually good. But they're constantly generating ideas. And in the writer's room, when you're in the doldrums, when you're having those, those moments where you're stuck, having someone just constantly be a fountain of ideas can be invaluable. But he said this other writer that he hires all the time, because he will sit there and not say much for most of the afternoon. But then when you're banging your head against the wall, he'll say, okay, what about this? And he'll come up with a complete perfect solution to it because he's been sitting there percolating ideas and j taking what everyone else is saying and sort of reformulating it in his own mind and then coming up with the perfect sort of solution were you going to say yeah something? we had oh we were all we were all good, ready to go uh i'll just be very brief there's there's kind of two comments i have on that and one is like uh, i'll use another metaphor because i guess i'll just that's what i'm going to do mm -hmm. um I think, especially when you're lower level, uh, which I am still, you know, staff writer, story editor, or even writer's assistant who has the chance to pitch, it's kind of like riding a wave. And so if you get up on the wave and like your pitch hits and everyone's like, wow, he's connecting with the character, keep pitching. And if on a day where like the EPs can't break it and they really want to work it out themselves and your pitches don't seem productive, maybe it's time just to paddle and uh, let them work it out because you're not always going to be on the wavelength with uh, the upper level writers until you yourself are able to kind of have that same kind of vision. So that's one thing. And the other thing is like, there's this skill that I think doesn't get talked about enough. And I think everything you're saying is correct, but there's a kind of person in a room, which I'll call like the board general who can see the uh, cards or dry erase board and just see the structure. And when the EPs are on meetings or they're uh, on set or they're doing something else, there's this person who's usually mid to upper level who can just keep everything orderly and understood and track where everything is going. Uh, my buddy, Justin Lowe, who has just shot up, he's like an EP on you now. He can just look at the colors of the board, move it around a little bit like a beautiful mind and, and solve problems for the showrunner. And I think that is such a fundamental thing. So you can be the machine gun rat-a-tat pitching all the time. You can be the person in your notebook, but are you making the showrunner's life easier? Mm -hmm. And are you doing it in a way that is kind of helping uh, the rising tide lift all boats. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I, I was going to go to another sports analogy for my story from Leverage, where we had John Rogers assembled just like the perfect room on that show. It's still to this date the best job I ever had in my entire career. And we had two writers I'll talk about to this day. There's a writer called named Jeff Thorne, who's probably my best friend in the world. And he was the idea guy. And he, I would equate him, he was like Cecil Fielder in baseball. You know, he swung all the time and he maybe only, you know, hit 250, 240. But when he connected, 
it was out of the park. Mm-hmm. And and when you know his one of his ideas landed, it, we 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 built a whole season arc on librarians out of one of Jeff's ideas in the room. And then the other writer on Leverage, <clears throat> excuse me, was Jen Cow. And I don't know where Jen is these days, but she's a genius. I'm sure she's an upper level crushing it somewhere. Jen did what you talked about, Kevin. Jen sat back and never spoke up unless, you know, she was compelled to. And she had this very quiet voice. And when Jen would start to speak, the whole room would just stop. And we would just all lean in because Jen was Ichiro. You know, Jen hit on probably 400 as a, as a writer in that room. You know, when she spoke almost every time, you know, we used whatever came out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. And and again, John Rogers was brilliant in assembling that room, you know, and we also had the guy Brendan just talked about who was actually lower. Like, he was a executive story editor, but he was he was a math guy. He was like a, a math, you know, I think he had a Ph.D. and he was the board general, Brendan, that you were talking about. And so he was the guy that was always at the dry erase board. And when the ideas were flying around the room, you know, faster than we could handle it he kept everything in order and just had that, you know, that beautiful mind to, to keep it all going. Right. Um, I had another question actually specifically for Brendan as a former writer's assistant, showrunner's assistant. And I'm going to ask it because Kara R who is in the chat asked the question. So it's a similar question. So I'm just going to tie them all together. We will get to everyone's questions in the chat uh, very shortly, but I wanted to ask this question. Um, Kara R asked, how can you find out about open writer's assistant jobs if you don't have any industry connections? Uh, I haven't seen many, if any at all, posted publicly online. She did rescind it saying she heard what we were talking about, and it's obviously about making connections. But, yeah, I mean, is there a way other than being connected to the industry, having another job or having friends, connections, acquaintances, uh, associates who work in the industry? How do you find out about you know, writer's assistant, obviously writer's assistant job for, for the, maybe we can start one step before that because writer's assistant is not an entry level job. It's not something that from never having worked in the industry, you can just sort of step into it's You would probably start off as a writer's PA or an office PA and then work your way into a writer's PA up into, you know, writer's assistant or showrunner's assistant to writer's assistant. It's sort of the top level of assistance within that that group, but maybe you can go into a little bit of just quickly the different positions within a writing staff, sure. even the support staff. Yeah, totally. Well, first of all, you know, uh, writer's assistant can be an entry level position. Uh, you know, if you're the president's kid, uh, staff writer's an entry level position. So it all depends Fair on enough. what kind of juice you have. Right. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, the hard truth, Kara, is that there's nowhere you can't go on LinkedIn and find these jobs. These jobs are generally not posted. Uh, they're they take a lot of candidates from all sorts of places and it's usually sort of connections. And so you say, well, I'm not connected. What do I do? Well, I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania. My first job was on an apple orchard. So I have as few connections as you could possibly imagine in show business. But what I will say is you need to move to Los Angeles and you need to meet people and you will be surprised how quickly the waiters that your restaurant you work at, the barbacks at the bar you work at, the Apple store where I worked in New York, I swear to you, I am still connected with friends from the Apple store who are working in the business in all different levels because it's about going to a place where art is happening, try to do art and you're going to meet people. Now, beyond that, a couple tips I have for you. One, once you get out here, start a writer's group with anybody who wants to write. 
And I had a writer's group of like 30 people. And then over six months or so, people fall out. And then the four people that actually want to be writers are still in it. And two of those guys, we still lift weights together. One's a producer on American Horror Story. The other was a staff writer on Superior Donuts. So we all ended up breaking in. And now people are like, well, how do you have these connections? It's like, well, eight years ago, we were just some guys who couldn't get work. Right. You know, the other thing I would think about is what other things can you do? You know, you mentioned when I jumped on in my bio, Kevin, that I was doing a lot of like freelance writing. I did a lot of film and TV reviews for websites for a while. That kind of helped me meet some people. I like Twitter. Some people find it uh, obnoxious, but I enjoy it. And that's helped me meet some people. And I've never gotten a job off of Twitter, but I have met people who are of a like mind. And I think someday I may get a job from someone I met on Twitter, you know, and that some people have, you know, I've seen the story. But um, so I think like, rather than having this uh, retaining wall in your head about, oh, I'm on this side of the wall, and this is where the connections are, mm -hmm. look at it more like, am I putting myself in the best position to meet the people who can help me someday, rather than where's the monster.com link to the warrior nun writer's assistant job. Right, right. Um, you had mentioned it before as well, uh, Brendan, although uh, Paul, maybe you could chime in as well, that you got your first jobs as an assistant, not from representation, not from querying, right? Um, so obviously you don't need an agent or a manager to get a staff job. You just need to have sort of an in. For those writers out there who are not, obviously, I, it, it, it's important to be in Los Angeles for any number of re reasons, including showrunner meetings. Now, maybe some of them uh, are taking place uh, via Zoom, but I don't know if that's going to be a long-running thing once everyone's vaccinated, once the pandemic is technically over. There'll be in-person showrunner meetings, and writers' rooms, a lot of the People who I'm talking to now who are in writers' rooms, are, it's obviously remote. They can work from home. But a lot of that's going to change as well, likely. Uh, now, some of it may be sort of a hybrid. I, I mean, I don't know how that's going to work. It's still probably up in the air. But for those writers out there who are submitting to agents and managers and getting uh, scripts in their hands and hoping that it lands on a showrunner's desk um, or you know, obviously upper level sometimes read scripts too when the showrunner's busy, whatever. Uh, I wanted to talk to you guys about the process of getting their script in shape, good enough shape to show to both reps and for the reps to show them to other upper levels. How does a, a newer writer, an emerging writer, know that their script is ready to be sent out? Um. Uh, I can, st I'll start really quickly just because I got rep for the first time about six months ago. And so um, I felt, you know, there's this Chris McQuarrie apocryphal story where he made a pile of like every feature script that had sold that year and read them all. And he would put them in piles of this is better than me. This is worse than me. <laughs> I didn't do that, but I do think like you do get a sense as you're writing more and more, you'll start to feel like, I would say like, five, seven years ago, I started to feel like my shit's good enough to get a job. I just got to get it in the right place. So I think that's something you feel. Mm -hmm. But I was trying to get rep every time I've been an assistant. And I even had the point where EP level writers would call their managers and say, read Brendan, he's good. And they still wouldn't read me or sign me. So it really is 
uh, a relationship thing. And, you know, managers have a limited roster and they want that roster to represent a variety of writers that can make them money. So it's not even about being good. It's about my wife was literally told she's also a TV and screenwriter was told several times we already have one of you and meaning we have like a woman who has been through UCB and went lived in New York for a while who knows sketch, you know, or whatever. Uh, and I'm sure some people have thought they have one of me. And so I, I don't mean to be dismissive of querying managers and agents because maybe you strike gold and maybe they're looking for you. But just know that like it's all part of a process. And just because your stuff is good doesn't mean that someone's going to see dollar signs uh, when they read it. And that's what has to happen for them to sign you. And if you're staffed, they don't need to see dollar signs because the dollar signs are there and the check is in the mail. Sure. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Um, okay, let's open it up to questions. There's a few of them in the chat already. So if you have questions, please drop them in the chat. We're going to start. Um, let's see. Broder Bro asked, um, as a Dutch guy looking at the options, what advantages or disadvantages would I have pitching myself as a writer in Los Angeles? Well, I, I think one of the, the very few silver linings of COVID. Sure. Uh, at least in within the context of our industry, is it has made the people that pay the bills finally realize that you don't have to physically be, you know, in the same space to to do the job. I don't. I don't think. I think the days of the old writers' room are gone forever. I, I think that even if we get a handle on this COVID eventually, the studios, you know, rent for a brick and mortar writers' room. It's a lot of money every month and they won't, you know, I think most shows are going to go to a hybrid of maybe two days in the room and three or four days on zoom or half and half, whatever the particular showrunner wants, you know, if a showrunner wants to have a physical writer's room every day, they're going to probably have to be at like the Shonda Rhimes level or something to, to get that because it, it comes down to money. It's always down to money with the, with the execs. So that to answer the question, I think you're, you're in the best, shape you've ever been in and and you know more and more i'm hearing all the time of of people now that are tape because now's the time to do it take a meeting on zoom you know because they don't they don't want you to physically be there anyways because we're still in this pandemic so it's the best time and if you can you know latch on somewhere i think you can be any i know a a, a staff that just hired the people ones from london and one of them's in canada and oh. you know it's a LA based show, but they've got, you know, an international writer's room now. Uh, let me briefly, I think everything Paul said in terms of pragmatics and logistics and money is correct. But I feel it's important to note, though, like, you can be somewhere else at this particular moment for the first time kind of in Hollywood history. But whenever I'm asked this, I kind of challenge that person, like, what do you want? And if you want to be a filmmaker and writer, you need to meet other filmmakers and writers because it's not just the job. It's the hours at the bar commiserating when you're like, like I remember uh, when we narrowly avoided a strike a couple of years ago and uh, I was a writer's assistant and a bunch of writer's assistants and I were like, we're not gonna have any money if they go on strike. And we like, dra we drank until the contract deadline together. Like you can't do that, not in Los Angeles. So like if you want a life as an artist and I think New York, London, Berlin, Tokyo, Mexico City, there are other hubs of art. And I'm not saying don't move there. But I just encourage you to consider 
that this is a collaborative medium, even if you're a feature writer, in a way that like being a novelist or a sculptor isn't where you can be in the desert in New Mexico and self-actualize and do things that way. What I would ask is like, there are sometimes reasons, family, money, et cetera, uh, visas that keep you away, but ask yourself like, what do you want to be? And a lot of times that might lead you to moving to Los Angeles eventually. Right. That's such a great point because that's to me, maybe the best point been made in this whole thing so far is what Brennan just said, because I have found this trend lately, especially in the last year or so, and this has nothing to do with COVID, but there's this, this thing now of people that are, you know, oh, I'm not a writer. I'm a actor, writer, producer, director, editor, you know, Reiki master, yogi. I, I And everybody feels like I, I find this trend heading to nobody wants a career as a writer anymore. They just want to sell something. And, you know, Brendan's exactly right. Like, have a be be self-aware, self-actualized, look in the mirror and truly ask yourself, what do you want? Mm -hmm. And if you want to, if you want a career as a writer, I've been doing that. I've been, I've put screenwriter on my tax returns for 21 years in a row. And it's a long game, you know, it's, it's a long con. And to, to just be like, you know, oh, I just want to sell something, you know, oh, uh, my friends and I shot our two minute film and threw it up on YouTube. Now I want to be a showrunner. Like, it, you gotta, you gotta have that conversation, Brendan said, with yourself, and really determine what do you want. Mm -hmm. um, Delask Arados uh, says, "Idea guys are hired?" Question um, mark. You obviously writing is still important. That's the foundation. Well, you don't need to hit the meeting without having written a great script. Right. That's that, that is the foundation of that. But if your strength is not necessarily dialogue, or your strength is not necessarily character development, but you have some amazing ideas and you're a constant idea generator, yeah, you may consistently get hired by a showrunner who really appreciates that. Uh, and it's in comedy... It's, it's, it depends on the the team, the showrunners yeah, assemble. what they're looking for and what they need. And in comedy, they like stand-up comedians are hired all the time on comedy shows, even ones who have not really, don't have a writing background, but they're, they, they're constant joke machines. They just... And I found yeah, but that... all, all, all good stand-ups are writers. They are, they write. They right, write they write material. jokes, but they're not necessarily not necessary. Some of them do write on their on their own time and have a script in their back pocket. In fact, a lot of them do, but not all of them. And you know, they can still get hired because they're really really funny. They're constantly generating jokes. They're making jokes better. And it, it's interesting too that, that comedy rooms oftentimes will be larger than uh, uh, drama rooms. Like in drama, like Brendan said, you have maybe six to eight writers, but in comedy, you may have eight to 12 heavier on the lower end. You'll have a lot more staff writers and story editors because you'll have a lot more people. They want more people in the room to have jokes at the ready. You know, having eight to 12 people coming up with jokes is better than six to eight. So a lot of times comedy rooms will be a little bit bigger. Paul and I both have this dubious look on our faces. So I'll try to like uh, say what I'm thinking, which yeah, is yeah. like, there's this idea. Okay. Everybody has ideas. Hmm. So that's great. Screenwriting is as much craft as it is art. And so like, if someone was like, I'm a potter, but like, I can't keep water in the pot, you <laughs> get better at it until the pot holds water and looks like a pot. Right. So when someone tells me like, I don't know dialogue, I don't know action. So on Warrior Nun, like action is, is not my strong suit. I was writing plays in college. I like indie film. I told you what I'm into. But, you know, David Hayter was one of the EPs and he wrote X-Men 1, X-Men 2, Scorpion King down the line. 
And so I had this opportunity. And so I pitched in my outline like a heist kind of sequence. And I wrote it and I wrote it and maybe wrote it 20 times. And then showrunner Simon Barry and he read it and they ripped it apart. And then I rewrote it and I rewrote it. I rewrote it 20 times and they ripped it apart and I rewrote it and I rewrote it. And now I'm good at action. So like this idea that um, and there are these stand-ups in comedy rooms that are just joke machines and what have you sometimes. That's a unique position that an experienced season stand-up gets that is not open to you if you're not that person. Mm-hmm. And that person probably is thinking, I'm sick of being on the road. I have kids and my family at home. I'm going to get good at writing scripts so I don't have to do that anymore. So the idea guy thing just doesn't hold water for me. Right. I mean, you obviously, like you had said, you have to have the basis of the foundation of writing. And, you know, obviously, hopefully you'll be improving in other areas. I'm just saying that people who, even if you're a good writer, a great writer, still that specialty, that superpower that every showrunner asks that you can fit in that team, what is your superpower? And some people's superpower, in addition to being a great writer, is that they're an idea generator. That's all, I think we were trying to sort of get at, but yeah, what you're saying is if, if you just have a bunch of great ideas, but you're a mediocre writer, you're probably going to have a hard time getting staffed. Yeah. Well, like, you know, this, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Paul. Well, I really quick the when I made the Jeff Thorne analogy that he was, he was the idea, idea guy. He didn't get hired because of that. He got hired because of his great writing and because of his great personality and intelligence. Then once he got in the room, he was a guy that generated idea after idea. And like I said, he struck out more times than he hit home runs, but it's, it's, yeah, we, we want to make sure people aren't suddenly thinking, Oh, a bunch of, cause look, every Starbucks barista has 25 ideas, hmm. you know? And if you're a professional writer, you've got 250 ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, when people come to me and go, Hey, I've got this great idea, but I'm not a writer. I want you to write it for me. Right. Sorry. No, I have my own ideas. I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of Jeff Thorne, uh, The Grove said Thorne is awesome. We need the weekly Geo Thor- uh, Thorne podcast. So I guess you have you and, unless, unless Jeff Thorne is here and he's commenting. No, uh, you have fans. Um, Christopher Kaminsky asked, for those who don't have a network and connections yet, how do you recommend starting to build those? Um, especially during COVID when it's hard to get a job where you're physically around other people. Although he goes on to say that Brendan answered the first half of this question, at least how to do this during normal times. Um, yeah, you're a big networker online, uh, Brendan. So how do you recommend that emerging writers meet other people in the industry during COVID times? Uh, I think I've mostly answered the best advice I have on this, but one kind of fine point I'll put on it is Um, if you know a guy like Paul, that's great. And if he can get you a job, that's great. But more than likely your peers are going to be the ones that are going to be your lifelong connections and get you your opportunities. Cause like Paul has peers and he has people that he spends his time with and he does not have time to like grow with you from an assistant position, but there's dozens of people like you that are at the place you're at that will want to spend their time talking to you and working with you and building your network. And that's going to be who's going to get you the next gig. Um, And so focus on that first. Right. Right. And you can come by the Scripts and Scribes Discord and chat with other writers. Uh, Link below. Um, Raina Hardy asks, what advice do you have for writers who haven't staffed yet but already have an agent? 
Congratulations. I can't answer that. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, Paul, what's your agent? So can you get me an agent? No, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll leave it to Paul. Yeah. I mean, I think Brennan and I have both kind of um, alluded to the fact we should probably discuss the whole, do you need an agent thing at some point in depth? I, I think that's fantastic. If you have an agent, but you haven't staffed yet, that means that they felt that your writing was good enough and who you are is good enough that they can make money off you. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic position to be in. You know, I would, I would have a lot of conversations with your agent. You know, one of the, I, one of the best things you can do, and you know, and I've switched, I've had five or six different agents through my career because, you know, uh, it's not the agency, it's the agent. You know, I've been with CAA and I've been with, you know, Gersh and Paradigm, like, it all comes down to you want somebody that believes in you and is willing to just go to the mattresses to to get you a job. So the only advice I have, and Brendan may have something better, is is just stay in really close contact with your agent and keep keep talking to them. And, and I know a good agent, like if I hear from a friend, like, oh, hey, you know, there's a position over on that show. Somebody, there's a writer that's not coming back next season. Or, oh, you know, that person quit that job. Then... I will fire off an email to my agent or manager and just say, Hey, will you look into this? And, and that's led to things. Um, I'll, I'll just add briefly. Yeah. I have a manager. Um, this is my first time having a manager and what has excited me about our relationship is he reads my material very quickly and he can articulate and understand what I do and what I'm good at. And I will send him just like Paul said, when a show pops on deadline or Hollywood reporter, like, for example, uh, the prequel to Yellowstone felt like a really good fit for me because I got this Davy Crockett script I wrote, uh, y- you know, a couple of years ago. And he couldn't get me in the room because it was already all taken care of. But it helped give my manager a sense of like what I'm into. Mm-hmm. And every time you're kind of throwing out like, hey, your material tells them what you're into, but also just being like, hey, I saw this thing that feels like me or this thing is, you know, or if they come at you with something and you're like, well, here's my concerns about how it may not be for me you're helping to build that because they have a lot of clients. And so I think it kind of echoes what Paul's saying, like, do they see money there? Do they see what you're trying to do? And is their vision for your career the same vision you have for yourself? Um, and do they answer your emails, which is a problem that a lot of my friends have as well. Right. And what I'll throw in, uh, having had an agent and also having had worked at an agency, worked at CIA before, what I will say is Brendan's original advice about networking, about making contacts, about building that network, build, making friends in the industry um, is invaluable because especially if you're at sort of the lower level of your agent's client list, i.e. the not working one yet, um, the developmental client, you have to do a lot of legwork yourself and tying into what Paul was saying, hearing about jobs and telling your agent, hey, submit me for this or I, I found out that from a friend who works on this show who's a writer's assistant on this show you know that they're looking for somebody or whatever although if they're a writer's assistant maybe they wouldn't you know my a friend who's a story editor on this show that says they're looking for a staff writer can you submit me or having being able to get uh, an interview with somebody a showrunner for example based on your agent submission and then saying oh well my friend who is you know a co-producer on this other show knows this producer. Can you call, give them a recommendation? Can you recommend me? Can you give them uh, uh, a good, put, put a good word for me in with the showrunner? So it still comes down to building a network and having a lot of 
contacts in the industry that that like and respect you. And I think that's ultimately still ties into the agency side, which is, again, I think the reason that it's difficult for emerging writers to land representation because you don't necessarily have that network and they have to do a lot more work on your behalf than somebody who already has a lot of those contacts, which is why not just like uh, Brendan said, you're a paycheck already guaranteed if you're already staffed, but the fact that you know a bunch of people in the industry because they don't have the time and resources always to, especially managers, to know about all the openings of all the jobs. And they don't know all the other writers that you know that you can that can recommend you. Because I've spoken to many showrunners, and obviously someone that they know, a recommendation from someone they know, a showrunner or a writer that they've worked with before or they're friends with, bears the strongest weight. But they'll, they'll all take a call. Like, if Paul doesn't know a showrunner, but Paul calls on my behalf and says, hey, Kevin's great. Would you, you should definitely consider meeting him. Um, they would take that call because he's obviously an established professional. He's been in business a long time. Yeah, okay, sure. I don't know you, Paul, but sure, you recommend him. I'll take a look at him. And so it bears a lot of weight. So building those connections and the contacts is, is important. So that's what I'll say. Even if you have an agent, it's still important to go out there and, uh, and uh, build that network. So... Um, that's my two cents there. Uh, let's see here. Um, okay, the next question is, let's see, Ola Alak, um, hopefully I pronounced your name correctly, says, once you've broken in, is there any sense of stability in getting your next couple room gigs or is it most often a situation where you're supplementing with other jobs? I'll probably ask Brendan that one. Since, Paul, you probably haven't had other jobs for a long, long time. Well, I'm not sure I understand the question either, so I can't wait to hear Ben. Yeah, I do think I get it. So uh, I'm going to share uh, some harsh advice that I got from a friend of mine. So he got staffed on a CBS show and didn't get brought back because the whole room didn't get brought back. They fired the showrunner and cleaned house, but kept the show going. So it was his first staff job. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, had a young kid. He's like, when am I going to work again? So he goes on Facebook and there's like a writer's group of like, and there's a poll how long did it take to get your second staff job? And there was one year, two years, three or more years, five or more years, something like that. Wow. Two to three years was the biggest vote getter. So that second job is hard. Um, I hope Warrior Nun comes back. That'd be great. Um, but these 10 episode seasons, you know, I'm kind of in flux. And so um, what's nice about getting staffed is it is you're going to make like more money than you ever made in that time versus like recurring retail or what have you, but that money is limited. So there's that question of, can I, first of all, file for unemployment as soon as you're done your show, uh, you know, and then live off that as long as you can, cause you want to be writing. And then when un unemployment runs out, you got to ask yourself a question of what's next, you know, and am I going to, is that job going to come? And, uh, I'm kind of navigating that, you know, I've been done since June, uh, and I haven't worked. And so, you know, we're, com we're coming up on about a, a little more than half a year. Uh, but luckily with COVID has been fortuitous because unemployment has been good, you know? Mm -hmm. So those are kind of nuts and bolts things that you'll deal with. And eventually like, once you get like producer level, the money is good enough. Hopefully you, you have a lot of time to buy yourself, but my advice is, um, you quit your day job when you get staffed, uh, but quit it on good terms if you can. And my other advice is be diligent with your money and act like you're still an assistant hmm. when you're done, because you may need to live on that money for a period of time. And I think that's the unfortunate side effect of just 
economics wise, eight to 10 episode season means you're not working that long, which means you're not banking that many weeks of that staff writer minimum, which means that's less weeks to pay yourself uh, in the time after that. Right. And that's also, I know a lot of writers that I speak to, uh, emerging writers, newer writers, uh, talk about, oh, I would never write for network TV. Network TV is terrible. It's all you know contrived. It's all trite, whatever. Until you see that they're shooting 22 weeks Ep- 22 episodes and they're working you know nine months of the year then you realize that uh, it's, it's a great gig it's a great great gig also 30 rock and good wife oh, are better sure. television shows than anything that's been produced on streaming so far i think 30 rock is highly underrated and I, uh, yeah no you're you're 100 right there's some great great tv shows on network and there's some cable shows that probably we won't name them, but, you know, probably shouldn't be on the air, you know. So there's good and bad in both. But network TV does get a bad rap sometimes uh, until you look at the numbers. Um, let's see. Nathan SM Knapp said, any advice for getting staffed as a comedy writer? You guys are both drama writers, but we'll see if we can answer it. Uh, is it best to enter contests, query, make YouTube videos with sample material, i.e. sketches, get stage time doing stand-up? Um yeah, you guys are both drama writers, so I don't know. I've spoken to a ton of comedy writers, so what what I'll say is there's no one way to get in. Uh, you can get in entering contests or a fellowship. That's a good way uh, if you can get into uh, one of the writing network fellowships because it's you know obviously they do their best to help staff you, uh, and the staff and uh, fellowship season's coming up, so you should definitely consider doing that. Um, as far as YouTube videos and, and sample materials or stand-up, unless you're prominent and get a lot of attention, you probably won't get seen. In other words, a showrunner's not trolling, uh, you know, open mic nights at stand-up clubs or watching a bunch of YouTube videos looking for an, a staff writer. Uh, that's not generally done. So unless you blow up or something and become a huge stand-up comedian, uh, that's not necessarily. I, I would say your energy is better spent writing uh, and then entering fellowships, you can query as well, um, and uh, entering, entering contests and stuff. That would be my best advice. But guys, I have a couple caveats to that. Yeah. Um, so my wife, who I always feel like I love to brag mm-hmm. about because I think she's so great. Uh, so she came up through UCB as an improviser. She was on a mod team, which is uh, where you do sketch comedy. Mm-hmm. And then she ran her own stand-up show here for a few years, and she did the viral videos, and she goes on podcasts and a lot of that stuff. And so what I'll say is comedy does have some of these other avenues that you can kind of go down. Like if your podcast goes viral, like Z-Way is a woman who she started her own IG live show and now she has her own sketch show. Mm -hmm. So like there are these other avenues and other like what I call lottery tickets you can kind of buy in the comedy world. Whereas in the drama world, it's like, is the script good? Okay. Because there's no world in which like Paul and I are going to be the leads in our next drama show. Whereas there is a world in which uh, Nick Sorelli and Brad Evans sell a show that they star in. These are two big mm-hmm. uh, Twitter guys that, that we know. So um, I think it's the same but different in that way. And, and Paul's written comedy I haven't. So maybe he has some other insight on that. No, I think I was going to say almost the exact same thing. Is I think getting staffed on a drama show or a comedy show has a lot of the same things. You've got to have a great sample and and writer's assistants and script coordinators, you know, have an inside track. But the thing that comedy offers that drama doesn't exactly what Brendan said. You know, if you can get in somewhere really legit, like a UCB, like they don't hire people that aren't hilarious. 
and and super smart. And you know that being you know discovered uh, that way helps a lot. You know, I, I think again in this in this ADHD world, people think like, oh, the always sunny in Philadelphia guys. Look what happened to them, or look what happened to this you know YouTube star. It's like yes, that happens, but also people win half a billion dollars in the lottery too. That happens. Mm-hmm. Is it likely? No. So, you know, the best thing you can do is focus on your craft. And if you're a comedy writer, what Brendan said, like, is there a better school than UCB or, or something like that? And what I'll add is, uh, you're right. I mean, I think you can play that lottery and, and see if something pans out. Because you never know where your break's going to come from. And comedy writers are picked out from all over the place. I mean, look at... Uh, uh, shit my dad says right a twitter account got turned into a tv show um it got canceled but it was found on twitter as a twitter account and turned into a tv show so it can't happen anywhere um but my take is if that's what you really want to do and you're passionate about doing that then do that but at the same time if it's like oh well this will be an easy way in i'm just gonna you know do some stand-up because that's great um it's a great experience i think and probably valuable to write jokes so that's probably not a bad thing but if you're thinking that that's the best way in if you have a limited amount of time because you have a job or a life or whatever i would say focus on your scripts but yeah if you can do other things like a podcast um like claire like you know do uh viral sketches or you know sketches and hope they go viral i think because if it does then it's different that's absolutely different so um that's good <clears throat> excuse me let's see here um Mark Keegley says, do any particular contest placements help one gain traction towards potential writer's room placements or are they just a waste of time? Hmm. I think there's very few contests that are really paid attention to by, by legit industry people. I think Austin's film, I think obviously the Nickel Fellowship, you know, there, there may be one or two others, but there's what, probably between 50 and 100 contests every year. Hmm. And the vast majority of those are, are ignored, you know, take that money and, and use it for some life experience rather than, than entering contests is, is my personal opinion. I, I agree with Paul, uh, a couple, like he had his couple exceptions. My couple exceptions are sort of these contests that are actually incubators that are sort of nonprofits, like women in film uh, and blacklist have a fellowship that my wife, Claire won, and they sort of say, we're going to do 10 weeks of a mentor a week. We're going to try to place you in meetings. We're going to get you in front of people. Uh, Film Independent and Sundance, even though I'm staffed, I still submit to because uh, those incubators get you connected. And like they might be able to say, hey, like Lulu Wang's going to direct your pilot now because you're in with Film Independent. Sure. Um, if they don't have an infrastructure like that, they don't have like a mission. Uh, I think a lot of times it's uh, what Paul said, where you're sort of sending off an $80 check to a PO box somewhere and someone is uh, enjoying a vacation in Tahiti on your money. Right. Um, and I will add that I don't know if it helps in terms of showrunners. Cause I don't believe showrunners are again, scanning the blacklist for high scores and things. They just, they get too many submissions from agents, managers, other writers on their staff kind of thing to do that. But if it's a prominent contest or a fellowship, a fellowship is different, but if it's a prominent contest like nickel or Austin or something like that, you may, and you become a finalist or you win one of those contests, you may actually 
get representation because agents and managers do read those finalist lists and contact the writers uh, on those lists. So if you're successful in that sense, you might get an agent or a manager who may be able to submit you to a showrunner. So in sort of a backdoor route to a showrunner, that's great. Uh, but yeah, there, like Paul said, there's I, he he may be underestimating and saying 50 contests, maybe 100 contests out there for screenwriters and literally seven that are probably worth the admission fee. And even then, it's still the lottery because some great scripts get tossed out. Some mediocre ones maybe move up to, you know, higher in the rankings than they should. But, you know, at least that's that's an opportunity. And we should say before we move on, though, the to reiterate, the network fellowships mm -hmm. you should be entering, especially if you have some sort of personal narrative or uh, some claim to those you get staffed on a show if you win. So that is like that is something that if you feel like you fit the criteria and you have the material, you should be submitting every year until you staff. Right. Yeah, there's um you should put this uh maybe in the show notes, Kevin. There yeah. if you go to wgfoundation.org, not WGA Foundation, but wgfoundation.org, there's a a link that I think the button's called resources and it has a list of every one of the fellowships and every one of the labs and it's, you know, it's the Writers Guild site, so they don't have any bullshit ones on there. They're they're the legit ones and most of the fellowships are no fee. You know the ones that like the labs and stuff. There's a there's a small fee, but but go there because that's that's where you can find you know the the list of the best ones to to enter. Yeah, and that's good, Paul. I mean, that's good advice. I, I'll put the link in the description below or on our website, so you should definitely check that out. Um, and one more thing, Kevin, on this note before we pass it by. Also, consider becoming a member of Women in Film if you're female identifying, and consider becoming a member of Film Independent. Uh, because there's talking about building that network, those are the resources you get a chunk off of your admissions to those contests mm. and also you, those networking opportunities. I mean, I was at the Women in Film uh, Christmas party because I've done some uh, sort of lecturing for them and their labs about being a writer's assistant. And there were maybe 700 women who came in the course of the night and some of them were like Sundance winning directors and people like I, I had never been in the presence of such a good network of peers and people a little above peers, you know? So those are two things to look into. Mm -hmm. um, Broder Bro asked, uh, maybe Brendan and Paul can talk about the kind of interview interviewing process that happens for staffing rooms from either side, how either side prepares and what they prioritize. So maybe we'll start with Paul and jump over to Brendan. Start with Paul. He's got way more expertise on this Damn than it. I do. Damn it. I was just... All right. Um, how to prepare for an, an interview? If you if you're lucky enough to, there's two there's two types of things. There's general meetings, which you'll you'll get maybe with execs at the studio or network. Um, but the the holy grail is the showrunner meeting because no matter how many approved lists your name gets on at the studios or networks, the showrunners do all the hiring. And my advice to preparing for those interviews is. You need to know if it's an existing show, you need to know that show. You need to watch as many episodes of that show that, as you can, even if you're not a, generally a big fan of the show. Um, if it's a new show, you need to know that showrunner. Well, you need to know the showrunner regardless what it is. But if there's not a bunch of episodes to watch, know that pilot that, that, is, that made it a show back and forth or front and back. And... I always do, even at this point now, at, at this 
point in my career, I will still do a deep dive on the people I'm meeting with. You know, Google is your friend and find the showrunner, read deadline or variety articles about them, see what their social media is like if they have any. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean go in and then pretend to be like, oh, I saw your thing with the German Shepherd. I grew up with the German Shepherd. You know, if you're being authentic and real, then that's great. You just want to know the person you're meeting with and you want to know the show that you are, you know, going up for. And it's like I said, it's well, Brendan talked about it, too. He he got on a show not being an action writer because he wrote a great script and he was great in the, in the interview. And that's just being prepared. I, I again, on, on Clubhouse recently, there was, was talking to some young writers that were talking about their frustration with, you know, oh, I had these meetings and I, I never got called back or staffed. And in the course of the conversation, I find out they just went into the meeting blind. Like they didn't know, they didn't do any due diligence. And that's just self-sabotage mm-hmm. for me. I'm sure Brennan has something better to add. No, not really. I, I, I echo all of that. I'll just share an anecdote that kind of proves Paul's point. Uh, when I interviewed to be a writer's PA on the show, Timeless, Sean Ryan was the showrunner. And I stayed up all night. Like re- I'd watched The Shield, but I just rewatched a bunch of stuff and I watched Terriers. And he gets to the point in the interview where he goes, any more questions? And I go, yeah, um, were they really going to San Diego at the end of season one of Terriers? And he like smiles and laughs because he knows I like did that. You know, I had done that preparation <laughs> um, and he he read my script. He called me personally and he said, look, you know, uh, we're going to go with internal promotion. We just didn't know if he was available, but I want you to know that you would have had the job if that weren't the case. And I really appreciate you coming in. So it's just like literally Paul's advice he just gave has worked out for me in real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and to that, another anecdote really quick on top of that, how I got the interview for NCIS New Orleans was because I went up for an interview on a show the previous season that I didn't get. I had this interview on this, on this series and I, it was one of the best interviews I've ever had. Like I remember walking out of there, walking across the lot, calling my agent going, I got this gig. This was the greatest interview I ever had. I didn't get the job. And I couldn't believe it. But then the whole NCIS New Orleans thing came up because the showrunners I met with on that show that didn't hire me, they were friends with the showrunner on NCIS New Orleans. And, you know, he had said, yeah, we're going to we need to bring in an upper level this season stuff. And they're like, oh, we met this great upper level guy. You got to check him out. That was that was why. And, and that that meeting that I had that was so fantastic is because I'd never heard of these two showrunners. But I did a deep dive on them. I watched shows that they had produced like five or 10 years before that I'd never even heard of. And I was able to talk about it, just like Brendan was saying, with Terriers and Sean Ryan. And that connection in that room didn't lead to that job, but it led to another job. Mm. Now, I wanted to quickly touch on something that you had mentioned, uh, Paul, about you'll get a lot of general meetings with executives and things like that as well as the showrunner meeting, which is, you know, obviously the important one because you're meeting with showrunners uh, for a job on a specific show. But can you mention approved lists for those who don't know? Because it's not just, unless you're, I mean, if you're Shonda Rhimes, you can hire whoever you want. The network will approve whoever. But it's on, on other shows, they have to hire a writer off an approved list, right? Because the, the, the network has to approve you as being a hire. So can you talk a little bit about 
approved lists and and get for newer writers. So there's there's the they're called approved lists, and then studios and networks all have them. And what they are is these list of writers that they approve. That means they've read their material, they've met with you, and they're like, okay, we we vet this person. They're worthy of working at our studio or for our network. Um, showrunners get those lists, especially people that are in their first or maybe second job as a showrunner, and they look at them. They don't, even those showrunners don't have to hire off that list. That's a bit of a misnomer, but this is what the studio and network recommends. And because it's, it's, it's not like you have to hire these writers, it's done as a service to the showrunner because the showrunner is so busy, especially in the beginning of a season, they can't read 25, you know, scripts. And so they'll look at this list. They'll see if they recognize any names, you know, they might call their friend. Hey, do you know this name, this name, this name? And that's how they start to call to get the meetings to, of who they want to spend their time meeting with. Cause they showrunners don't take a lot of meetings mm -hmm. again, because they're really busy. That's running a show. Um, so that's what the lists are. And yeah, you can not be on an approved list and get hired, but generally the way it works is especially moving up, um, even if you come from an assistant or script coordinator and stuff, is you have these general meetings. Brendan can probably talk about general meetings, maybe, um, that you start to get, you know, when you staff and work. You, people also want to get to know you and meet you. Like, oh, you're a staff writer on that show. Sit down. I want to meet you. I want to get to know you because that studio has endless number of shows that they're producing. Yeah, that was actually really enlightening for me because I didn't know much about approved lists. I kind of heard about them, but didn't know how they worked. But uh, just to Paul's point, yeah, like once you get repped, uh, your manager is going to start thinking about getting you general meetings. And, you know, depending on your manager, sometimes they'll be very bullish, just like meet anywhere possible. Sometimes they'll be like, let's find places that kind of fit your tone and style or you're looking for someone like you. But regardless of their approach, they're going to want to get you in front of people just to talk about who you are and have them get to know you so that they may remember you when a job comes up in the future. And uh, I'm kind of at the beginning of that process, but my two coworkers on Warrior Nun who were the steps above me have both had situations in the last year where they had a general that was about nothing in particular at a studio where they felt they'd be a good fit. And I can't say what the studios are because it's still under NDA, but that led to staff jobs for them within six months. They called and said, we liked you. We liked your sample. We liked your vibe. We want to bring you onto this. So generals are kind of the, um, the base of how all these things start to happen. Right. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, Raina Hardy asks, what's your strategy for keeping up on what's staffing or in development? I subscribe to deadline alerts, but it's... Uh, all a bit overwhelming and unfiltered. <laughs> so I'll leave that to you guys. Well, I'll just say uh, whenever I, I, I like Twitter and I follow the trades on Twitter and that's a good way to not be obsessively clicking from websites, but I'll be totally honest. Like what's on there does not match the intel your reps have and the reps really are the ones who know what's going on. And so I'll email uh, my my manager and be like, I just thing just came on deadline. He's like, man, that has been going for eight months. They already have a room. I've already seen the the early cuts. Or sometimes I'll be like, hey, you know, the trade said that this is happening. He's like, oh, no, they just put that in there because they wanted to scare off someone else with a competing project. I don't think that's going to happen for a year. Uh, but obviously, like until you have 
the reps to do that for you and to tell you how dumb you are and how you don't know anything. It's really like all you can do is your best to try to read the tea leaves of what's out there. And so I just say like, follow the trades on Twitter, follow the trends as best you can, listen to podcasts like this one that are relevant to you. But I mean, there's so many people, agents and management companies and studios who are paid to know what's going to happen. And like your job as a writer is kind of just to write and do your thing and be there when the opportunity emerges. You're never going to know as much as the agents at CAA or the managers at Zero Gravity know about what's happening behind the scenes, behind the scenes. Right. And having, again, worked at CIA, I can tell you there every department, whether it's, you know, TV lit or, you know, film talent, there's a coordinator of every department whose sole job it is really to gather all the intel from all the different agents in the building and their assistance of things that are coming and things that are in development, thing, who's attached to what. And they, co they coordinate, and they gather all of it and put it into a weekly report that has everything in development, who's attached to it, who's the contact person at what studio, what network, what stage they're at. And it's this gigantic document that they just, every week, they're just like constantly updating it. And so that's the reason that agencies are invaluable. And that's the reason managers are always working in, you know, concert with, with uh, these agencies because agent, you know, CIA has a lot more resources than even the larger management companies. Except, you know, there are a few probably that have, uh, ample resources like anonymous, you know, ones that have dozens of, of managers, but most for the most part, the small, smaller shops, they just don't have the same resources. But again, that's the reason because they're always in contact with the networks, with the studios, and then there's somebody aggregating all that data for them. And because information is key, that's what separates them from their competitors is having the information first so they can submit you first. But what I will say is for those who don't have representation is again, going back to what Brendan was talking about is, is networking and not doing it disingenuously. Like, you know, Paul said, they can sniff out if you're faking it, but genuinely try to make contacts. And you may have to do it with people that are at your level. You know, you're starting out because like with Brendan's friends, I mean, they've gone on to become successful. He's gone on to become successful and working in the business, but you have to build that network because if you don't have other resources within the industry, like an agent or a manager, sometimes the information will come from, Hey, did you hear about that job? That's, you know, coming up or, Hey, by the way, you know, on my show, there may, you know, there's this, one of the staff writers is, is moving to another show um, as a, a story editor or whatever. So there's going to be an opening. So that's the only way to really sort of know those kind of things. Well, let me ask you, Paul, do you feel any differently about this stuff now that you're like a little further along? Like, do, do you feel like you get any of that intel or you have a peek behind the hurt more? Or do you still feel like you're uh, kind of doing the same thing I said I was doing? Um, it's it's exactly still what you said. You know, I, I always equate Warren Buffett said this great thing once regarding the stock market that I equate absolutely with our industry and what you're talking about is, you know, and he said, if you. If you read about a stock or hear about a stock on TV, you're six weeks too late. And, you know, it, it's the same thing, like you said, you know, stuff that's announced in the trades, it's either already too late or it's like you said, a press release where you're a year and a half too early. Mm. Um, but uh, it's it's the reps like Kevin was talking about and, and you, Brennan, that, you know, are the most dialed in. And, you know, that's why they have lunches all every day you know, go and meet and talk and why they, you know, go have drinks afterwards. And um, 
Buckeye had a comment, which I thought was interesting. Um, so Buckeye says, make friends with assistants at the agencies. They are trying to get promoted and they need to find new writers. They sometimes read more than the agents. What I'll say to that, again, having been in that position, I don't know if either of you, I know you probably haven't, Paul, but I don't know if any of you have worked at the agencies where I have. I've been an assistant at an agency. Uh, what I will say is that's not wholly untrue, except for the fact that, uh, well, one, yes, we do read a lot more than the agents. Agents don't tend to read as much. Uh, they'll read the coverage sometimes, but uh, it takes a lot for them to get them to read a unsolicited spec. Um, but what I will say is don't be pestering. If you can make a contact, I wouldn't just go around cold emailing uh, assistants at agencies Uh if you have an in, like you know somebody at a production company who can introduce you to people or get introduced uh, organically, like with Brendan, you know, at a bar, at a restaurant, at an event, and you can, hey, you know, everyone's talking, everyone's networking. That's what you do at networking events or just events in general in the, in the industry. And you can get introduced that way, making a personal connection. That's great. And as an assistant, yes, I would read things. But the sheer volume of people just emailing, hey, read my script, or this is going to win an Oscar, or you have to read this, or whatever. I, I would not read those at all. I just was too busy. I had too much other stuff to do within my own job to read cold queries and then say, yeah, send me your script. I mean, every once in a while, maybe if something blew me away, but generally speaking, the best way to do it is either introduction. Like if, if another assistant at a production company said, hey, I know this writer, he's really good, would you read it? Of course I would. Or if I met someone at an event and, you know, hey, what do you do? I'm a writer. Oh, really? What do you write? And they, they had an interesting story and they seemed cool. Then, yeah, sure. Send me a script. I'll take a look at it. And for the most part, when you get them, you send them off to coverage unless you really like the person or something like that. And, you know, then the story department would send it back. And if it gets doesn't get passed on or the coverage isn't brutal, then you can take a look at it. But um, just submitting a cold email to an assistant at an agency may not be as effective as, again, trying to find a different way in, just like you would with anybody else in the industry. It's, it's, there's so much competition trying to get noticed that it, you, know, you have to find a unique way to, to meet people. You, know, you actually have to meet people, I think I should say. Um, anyway, so that's – neither of you guys worked at an agency, right? So I will, we'll just move on to the next one, right? Well, no, but I think uh, one thing I'll say yeah. when I was an assistant, what I would always try to do, especially when I was a showrunner's assistant, is kind of see if I could get the email of my showrunner's agent's assistant. Oh, yeah. And sometimes that would yield uh, drinks, like twice I think it did, and sometimes it would yield a complete blow-off. And if it yields a blow-off, you can't push because it's kind of delicate. But sometimes they want to meet people and they're into meeting you. So, you know, it's possible. No, and that's 100% true. If I was speaking to an assistant, at a you know different company or whatever and i was an assistant oftentimes you know either i or they would initiate hey you want to grab drinks you want to grab lunch you want to grab coffee and almost always yeah it's just you, you make that happen because you're both you know trying to like uh like uh he said get promoted so you all want to and you're going to grow and build your careers together uh it's not all about hitting up paul saying hey you know can you hire me or can you recommend me i don't really know you but uh you know that kind of thing it, it, oftentimes you you build you grow with each other from the ground level up. Um, yes, I think too the assistants, um, agents, assistants, especially, and and children nurses, and they they kind of run the town in a weird way, you know. But before Franklin turned the blacklist into commerce, 
Um, it was the subversive underground thing started by the UTA assistants. And it was because they were like, gosh, there's so many great scripts out there that are that the agents we work for are passing on either because of packaging reasons or whatever else. And so they started this list that went around, you know, in the days when there was only email and that was the blacklist. And it was just this thing that it was all the assistants working together and, and reading each other. And then the CAA assistants were like, oh, you got to see it. You should check out the script from us. And it became this thing. And then Franklin Lettering, the genius that he is, took it and turned it into a business. Mm -hmm. um, Raina Hardy asks, how do you move from having general meetings to having staffing meetings? If you know, let me know. No, um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'll leave this mostly to Paul, but I'll just say briefly that it's you have less control over that than you wish you did. I think that uh, the, the, the it's what I've seen be successful is more just taking as many generals as you can and building connections and then being kept in mind. But maybe Paul's got some great insight on that. The only thing I would say is is focus on your writing because everything Brendan says is true never turn down a meeting take every meeting no matter how general it is you know but pre-covid every staffing season that i wasn't working i would call it the bottled water tour like okay here i go i'm going around town for all these generals and it's like you know would you prefer you know room temperature water or ice water and it was but it's all about connections you know and and executives have their lifespan at a company shorter than an nfl running backs career like they go from company to company to company a lot. And you you just want to make those connections. You're going to get a showrunner meeting if you get on that approved list, which happens because of general meetings, and they see your name and they pick you. But again, both those meetings come down to if your writing isn't good enough, you're not getting the meeting. So it's all about networking, yes. But the, you know, the horse in front of that cart is the writing, that it all comes down to write as great a script as you can write, yeah. multiple scripts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see, Stanley Curtis asks, question to both Brendan and Paul, do you have certain techniques to your writing process? And if so, what are they? Um, you know, the this question comes up, I feel like a lot, and the, all I can say is, uh, writers write, so find space every day to be writing and find an environment that you can write in. And I think that's different for everyone. I mean, I meet some people that like to sit in a coffee shop. I don't. I like to be at home uh, in this room, preferably. Uh, it helps me that my wife is a writer and we don't have kids, so we don't have a lot of distractions. Um, that isn't to say those things are obstacles that are insurmountable. It's just to say that there's no silver bullet other than create circumstances in which you are writing every day, preferably for as much of the day as you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think of, you know, the endless number of maxims about writing, maybe the only one that's really a hardcore truth with everyone, because all of our processes are so different is write every day, you know, write, you got to turn it into a discipline, it has to it has to go from, you know, a habit routine it's got to be discipline and i i try to get up at the same time every morning and write and i'm i'm only good and i've just learned this through trial and error of myself i'm at my best in the early mornings and and after maybe depending on how the day like four to six hours 
I'm done. I'm spent mm -hmm. creatively. And so I will get up as early as I can and I work straight through um, until, you know, noon or two o'clock, something like that, maybe three o'clock and then I'm done. And I, and I've turned it again through trial and error. Cause I was a very undisciplined writer in the beginning um, that it's, it's all of, it's all about that, you know, and your writing space is so critical, but like Brennan said, everybody's different, you know, mm -hmm. um, find a space that just is conducive to the muse showing up, you know, and you're going to have to spend a lot of days in that chair where the muse doesn't show. And you're going to have to write those days as just as hard as you do when they, when the muse does show. Right. For me, the only trick, I guess, if it's, if that's even the right word is I can't, I've talked about, I may have talked about this on the podcast with you, Kevin, I'm incapable of writing without music. I, um, I just posted on my Instagram this morning. I, I, I create a playlist for every single project I do. And I, for whatever reason, I can't even begin the project until I've created the playlist. And it's, it's a score, you know, a soundtrack that puts me emotionally into the, the tone or mood that I want for that project that I'm going to start working on. And sometimes it takes me forever to create the playlist. Um, and sometimes it comes really fast, but that's just a thing I do that helps put me emotionally in as, as opposed to just sitting down and listening to the same music score over and over, or just sitting down in silence. And I know everybody's process is different, but that's what I found works best for me. Mm -hmm. uh, Stanley's got a couple more questions. One, um, during your writer's room sessions, how do you structure the story and Bible and how do you encompass other writers quote out of the box ideas? This seems kind of a big question. So uh, I'll leave it to you guys to sort of, touch base well I, briefly i'll say actually uh the bible is usually generated after the uh work is done in the room for the season uh that version of what a show bible is is something that would exist for the next seasons of writers to reference or for uh other sort of like people close to the project to reference uh that's different from a bible one might create to sell a pilot that's like heavy on mythology which what those are and what they do could be a whole other uh, kind of podcast session. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, on Warrior Nun season one, the Bible was my responsibility, not the showrunners. Um, and then the other stuff, you know, it's it's all going to depend on the showrunner. Every showrunner works differently. Uh, there's probably index cards or dry erase boards in the room that probably are color coded based on A plot, B plot, C plot, D plot that probably uh, are written out for each episode before it goes to outline. But you know, there really are no like firm rules in my experience. And it's kind of like on the first couple of weeks of any show, you're kind of figuring out like, how does a showrunner like to break story? Because it might be totally different than what you've done before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all comes down to the showrunner and how they, how they run the show. And um, like Brendan said, the first couple of weeks, you may just be talking blue sky, you know, 30,000 feet view. You may just be pitching out, you know, like on NCIS New Orleans, which again was a very procedural heavy show. The first two weeks was literally just pitching plot ideas. You know, oh, a guy dies this way. Oh, a Navy guy, this happens to him. And they were just all thrown up in the board. And then you start culling from that. It all it all comes down to to the showrunner and every every showrunner runs their their room differently. And and 
you know, figures out the seasonal arcs and the, and the stories, uh, however they want to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Stanley also asks, is screenwriting for film under streaming platforms, uh, making screenwriting different since writing content for streaming services is different from TV and network? I disagree that writing for a streaming network is different than writing for TV and network. I mean, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon are streaming services. And those scripts are just like, you know, the scripts on, on A&E or FX or HBO. Um, and I think I'm, I'm doing a movie right now or, or about to do a movie for Netflix. The script is exactly the same as if it were a feature. Like I have a feature spec that I'm working on that's, you know, my idea is that it's traditionally, you know, if we ever have theatrical release features again, it'll be like that. It looks exactly the same as my script for the Netflix movie. Brendan asking, since you're working, your last gig was warrior, not on Netflix, obviously a, a, a streaming service, but you've also worked on uh, cable shows, correct? Um, where you have commercial breaks. Are the act breaks similar in Warrior Nun versus like, you know, a streaming service versus what you would have on a cable or network show? So this is kind of a complicated question because it depends if the showrunner likes to write hard to act breaks uh, or not. But generally, it's not actually about streaming or network. It's about the particular place you're working. Like um, Paul, no better than I will, but like one place has five acts and one has four, a couple different networks. And then those executives go streaming and they may expect things a certain way or what have you. It's kind of loose, but like everything is three act structure. It just depends if you if you have five act structure, you're adding like another uh, plot twist in there that is sort of uh, it's an ask for commercial breaks or for the house style. But basically, it's Aristotelian three act structure. And if you've read a play, a Shakespeare play, you know, structure um, as well as you would if you had watched every episode of Law and Order or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the difference between uh, network and cable and streaming is more about the executives who were there. So, for example, like uh, I've had some executives who I knew from network end up covering us in streaming. And then that experience was the same. Uh, and the experience is different if that's not the case. And so uh, a lot of the experience for me being positive or negative or rounds of notes or things like that all just depends on the executives assigned to the show and what they feel their mission is. And I think like what I've found is you're just really lucky if you get quote unquote good executive. And I don't, I can't define what that means exactly. And I can't uh, list the qualities just like sort of uh, the old thing about porn, like, you know, when you see it, you know, Uh, and that's sort of been my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I would only add to that. This is a, and again, look, this is just my personal opinion, take it or leave it. Um, Something again, that these, these, non-writing experts you know try to tell you is is how to write and you know you have to write in five acts or six acts or this and you and brennan said said it all every story is three act structure you know it doesn't matter i on librarians we had to write to six acts the stories were still three act structure and i encourage all emerging writers with their with their their spec pilots and things like that unless you are specifically targeting broadcast sitcoms which have a very very specific format with the cold open and the tag and the i would 
completely eliminate act breaks in your in your specs in your original work because it's just antiquated you know and if you get a job on a on a big broadcast show that has to write to five acts then you're gonna write but they're not going to not hire you because wow you had such a great spec but it didn't have any act breaks so i'm not gonna hire you right. that's just never gonna happen and i think it really handcuffs a lot of writers because they get obsessed with these act breaks and it can really screw with your storytelling. You know, beginning, middle and end, setup, conflict, resolution. That's three act structure. We've known it since we were toddlers and we're read stories at bedtime by our parents. Just write without act breaks. Um, and if you get hired and have to write to act breaks then God bless, that's a fantastic, um, you know, little curve to learn. Um, so we're getting down here in terms of time wise, we have a couple more questions and if anyone else has final questions, it's your last opportunity to drop them in the chat. Um, so you should do so now. Uh, Catherine Chandler asked, there's been so many superhero and sci-fi movies and TV shows. Is this trend going to continue or, or are any other themes emerging? So gentlemen. Is sci-fi and superhero stuff here to stay, or is it going to uh, uh, be replaced by some other genre? Put on your hmm. your uh, prognostication. All right, I'm, I'm going to be politic here and okay. say, um, if you study Hollywood history, you see that all genres eventually come to an end. And however, uh, the prime of like the MCU-driven superhero stuff has not lasted nearly as long as Westerns have lasted. Westerns lasted like 40 years. So to say, is it coming to an end is difficult. What I will say is you can look at certain trends in film and television, the biggest one being the sort of emphasis of IP, the dominance of Disney, the importance of global sales, which tell us that things like superhero films and Star Wars are going to dominate for the foreseeable future, but I would push back and say there were 500 shows on the air last year. Many of them did not involve a superhero or a science fiction element. And many people make great careers writing things about, you know, dads being goofy or, uh, you know, people cheating on each other, depending if you write on network or on cable, I guess. Yeah, and I would only add to that, you know, the, the, the superhero genre as long as people keep, you know, watching, tuning in, as long as the companies keep making money off them, they're going to keep making them. And I'm somebody that doesn't really believe that any genre has ever been dead. You know, the rom-coms dead and the this and that's dead and the Western's dead. You know, Godless was a Western TV series that came on and that was brilliant. And now there's like three other Westerns in development. And so it's like, write the thing you're passionate about, write the thing you want to see. Don't chase the market. You know, if you absolutely love 80s rom-coms and that's, you have an idea that's perfect for that, write that because that may be the script that then gets made and suddenly everybody wants the 80s rom-com back in. It's no genre is ever dead. It just comes down to great writing. It's cyclical, you know. Um, okay, so let's see here. Uh, Stan, our friend Stanley Curtis is back with another question. When your work is being criticized by professional critics and audience reception, 
does oh, it moved all that. Does the uh, constructed criticism change your perception to your writing? If so, why? No. Um, well, I, I, the anecdote I love to share is that I worked on a show that had the headline on RogerEbert.com. Uh, this show is the worst show of 2016. So I've definitely <laughs> been through it. Um, and, you know, I worked as a critic and an essayist uh, before I made it, you know, whatever is so as much as that meeting, I don't have to do that anymore today. Maybe I'll have to do it again tomorrow. So like, I love critics and criticism. I think it's important, uh, but it isn't really meant for the artist to reflect on it and change their work. It's meant to reflect the artist's work to society on a whole and influence maybe the next group. But if uh, a showrunner, I've never worked for a showrunner that reads the the critiques and then adjusts unless the criticism is something like this show did something ableist racist or sexist in the previous season at which time sometimes that's the type of criticism that maybe the network or the showrunners will kind of meditate on and think about how they could do better in representing that overlooked segment in the work but quality like if it's not your cup of tea i don't care i you know i got paid the check cleared Um, Raina Hardy asks, okay, this question is for fun. What is your least favorite piece of writing advice? My least, what's, what's the least, least what's your favorite, favorite piece of writing advice you've ever been given. Well, I don't know if it's advice I've been given, but the advice that I hear ad nauseum that is my least favorite is, is that people think structure is, is guidelines hmm. and it's not structure is a result. Structure is a symptom. But all these, you know, the Save the Cat books of the world, they don't understand that. You know, there's a reason Blake Snyder couldn't get hired anymore as a screenwriter. And so he wrote a book. Like, if you think Stop or My Mom Will Shoot's a better screenplay than Memento, God bless. Good luck with your career. I wish you all the best. I'm going to I'm gonna kind of go with Nolan. Um, my least favorite advice I ever got was consider going to graduate school. <laughs> uh ask Eridos says hi i've been writing self-taught for a year and yet i know none of what you've talked about so far well okay that's good uh eye-opening but how do i keep learning about it so how does he keep learning about writing write read yeah i i think you know i I hear what Paul's saying that like a lot of these books are uh, useless ultimately, but I think that if you're just getting started, it's not a terrible thing to just consume a lot, whether it is books about craft or reading screenplays and watching movies and listening to podcasts and kind of find what works for you. Cause I think like once everything is three X structure, like Paul said, so you can consume any diet in that realm and, have that be useful for you. And, you know, for me, like one of the things that really helped me click in was Dan Harmon's story circle, which just breaks down hero's journey, but it takes away the uh, find the goddess stuff. And is like, basically character wants something they do X, they get the thing and then things change kind of stuff. Uh, Stanislavski or anything like that. So consume, consume, consume art. And then if you need to find some structural guideposts, there's a billion books and pamphlets and podcasts. Find the one that helps you get to the next level, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree that the best the best thing you can do, um, whoever asked the question or for anybody listening, 
read screenplays, watch movies, watch TV shows. One of the one of the best things I think, and and again, Google's your friend with this, is you know find a, a movie or TV series pilot that you that you really love or is a genre you want to be in. Get that script, find it on the internet, and then watch it with the script in front of you. And that's a fantastic education to see how how the written word transfers to the screen. Um, and and again, the 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 thing these books just don't understand, and it's why so many people I think get off on the wrong track, is it's all forensics. All the books, the how-to books, are forensics. They're analysis after the fact. Nobody writes a great script going from you know it's like buying the furniture for your house and putting the furniture on before you've built the foundation of the house and the walls of the house. And, and so I, I think there's fantastic books you can read on writing that, that aren't necessarily how to books. You know, if you read the war of art by Steve Pressfield, that's my favorite book maybe ever on, on writing. If you read what I talk about when I talk about running by Murakami, you know, if there's so many, show me the magic by Paul Mazursky, making movies by Sidney Lumet. There's some fantastic books out there that will will give you a great education, but but I don't think anything will will help you as much as as reading um, and writing, 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 writing. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with Paul. I'm looking at my Claire and I put all of our like writing and directing how-to books on this one shelf here. So I'm looking at them. I think I have half of what Paul mentioned here. I'll add uh, On Writing by Stephen King. Yes. Uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman. The Bible. And one of my, yeah. And one of my favorites, uh, Writing Movies for Fun and Profit by Robert Ben Garrett and Thomas Lennon from Reno 911, where they have a whole chapter about how you can <laughs> analyze the parking spot you get at the studio and know how important you are. So uh, there are some good ones, but yeah, it's, you got to recognize that none of these are uh, the thing that is going to put you over. They're just things that are going to help you take the, you know, 300 movies you watched last year, 100 TV shows, and maybe help you pull out some observations. But don't uh, look at the book and think that's going to be the, the key to making you a good writer. Yeah, I agree. There's There really are some great books out there. The, the ones you mentioned, I mean, Goldman's book, I can't believe I didn't mention it. That is the Bible. If there's only one book you're going to read as a screenwriter, read that. There's another great one by a guy named Iglesias that's called 101 Habits of Highly Successful Screenwriters. And Iglesias is not a screenwriter, but what's fantastic about that book is all it is is interviews and excerpts with really fantastic professional working screenwriters and and just what their process is like and how they tackle story problems and structure issues and um, any anything like that is fantastic. Well, I'm going to have to get both of your guys' lists, and I actually have a number of those books as well, and we'll put them in the, the links below in the comments or uh, on our website so you can have them all and not have to, like, furiously jot down names. But So I'll have to get both of your guys' lists after we uh, wrap up so that we can uh, put them for put them. Uh, up for everyone to kind of take a look at um and but what i will say also is how do you keep learning the important thing is you keep learning that's the important thing you don't think that you know everything you don't think that oh i'm i'm ready to go i should be a showrunner right now you keep learning because you know we all keep learning as we every script is better than the last supposedly i mean you learn every time you write a a script so keep learning you you know listen to podcasts hey if you learn some things today there you go i mean you keep learning, you keep writing, you keep growing, you keep getting better. I mean, just keep working at it, right? Um, 
Uh, okay, our friend Stanley Curtis is back. Uh, when a show is canceled okay. after a couple of seasons full of stories with connection to both the creatives and the audience, how do you move from one project to the next? Could you say that again? Uh, basically, I think he's asking is if you've been on a show for a couple seasons full of stories and you have a connection to that show and the material and the characters and the world, how do you move on? How do you change your mindset to go to the next project? I, I mean, it's a job, like it still comes down to writing, you know, whether like, I mean, Brendan probably talked about this better. Like he said, he's on a show right now. That was nothing like what he's been writing for the last, you know, few years leading up to it. Like, how did you wrap your mind around the warrior nun of it all? Well, you know, to me, uh, genre is just kind of the way you're working today, just like you're going to paint a house a different color if you're a house painter or, you know, you're a bartender and they want a Manhattan and not an old fashioned. And to me, uh, all stories are the same. They're about conflict and genre is just such a fun thing. And to me, I don't look at it like uh, I need to be working on this kind of show, because if you do that, you're not going to work. I look at it like, wow, what a cool opportunity to try something different. And uh, just a quick anecdote on cancellations, because it's like the writer mindset. I worked on a network show called Heartbeat, which is a medical show about a heart surgeon who can't find love, Heartbeat. And uh, we premiered to uh, a point eight, which in those days was in the show, which was terrible. Yeah, Paul knows what used to mean. Now that doesn't mean anything, but in those days, like if you were below a one, it was over. So I'm a writer's PA, I come in, and I, I get there on time. I get there half hour early after the writers have cleared out their offices. I help them put their boxes in the car and they say, well, uh, we're going to work from home this week because they knew the cancellation was coming. And uh, they kept me on in the room for two months because they didn't want me to have to deal with unemployment. So thank you to them. And the shoot continued. And I would just have to pick up the phone and go, yeah, you know, uh, she's not in today. Uh, she said she's going to be in after lunch. So just call me back. And uh, they never came back in the office. So uh, I think that mindset speaks to what Paul was saying that, you know, it's a job and life goes on. Uh, Raina Hardy wants everyone to know that Paw Patrol has not been canceled. So I just want to relay that for any Paw Patrol fans out there. Um, bro to bro, fun question. Why would you have loved to have written for WandaVision? Um, please no spoilers. I am one of those binge watchers. I wait for the season to end before watching it. And then I watch the whole thing in like two days. So, but yeah, for you guys who have seen it, why, uh, would you have loved to have written for WandaVision? Have you, did you say that that you wished you No, the question is why would you have loved to have written for it? Oh, if you, if you've seen it, if you haven't seen it, I, mean, I, yeah, I know the show. I mean, I, I would probably never get hired on that show because I, I don't think I have any material that, that would connect. Um, but I would just love the challenge of it because it's so unique. It's, I mean, how rare is it to see something that we haven't seen before hmm. and you've never seen anything like that before on TV. So I, I would just, I would love the challenge. You know, um, superhero stuff is not my bag, um, which is really funny because Warrior Nun is based on a comic book. I never thought I'd work on a show based on a comic book. And so I'll go back to what I said before, which is, uh, you know, every show is a new and interesting challenge and you never know how you can play with genre or do something different. And uh, I probably won't watch WandaVision. I don't really watch superhero stuff unless it's required of me for some sort of interview. Um, like I kind of told you what I'm into and it's just not my thing, but you know, 
Matt Shackman, who is a director who did a bunch of Always Sunny, and then he did uh, the Loot Train episode of Game of Thrones as their producing director over there, and I think he's amazing. So, you know, I think like any show, you would get a chance to work with a lot of amazing people and do something challenging. But uh, if uh, my manager asked me to name 30 shows I'd want to work on, I'd be honest, I don't think WandaVision would make the top 30. Um, okay, last couple questions here. Um, Dil Ask Eridos wanted to clarify his question about how do you keep learning? Uh, apparently, he's talking about the industry, about agents and representation. So basically, his question is, how do you, did you learn all this industry, industry stuff, not how to write? I mean, I think it's experience, isn't it, Brendan? Just like, I mean, a combination of of networking and 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 working as a as a PA or a stand-in and meeting people and talking to people and having drinks with people and hearing stories. I, I think it's just, I mean, it's not a good answer. I'm sorry, but I think it's like life experience. The first office PA job I had, I mentioned to the director, Allison Liddy Brown, that I loved her episode of Friday Night Lights. And she said, the Sun, which is about uh, Matt Saracen's father comes back from the military. It's one of the great TV episodes. Like if you see a list of the top 50 of all time, it is on there. And I said, I love that. And she said, listen, you come in an hour early tomorrow. I'll come in an hour early before my call. And we can just sit here for an hour. You can ask me any question you want about directing that episode. And she took that time for me. And so nothing will compare to getting out here, getting jobs and talking to people. And until then, you've got podcasts, you've got books, you've got YouTube, you know, you've got all the things you can do. But uh, I have treasured that hour and I learned more in that hour about TV than any book I ever read. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so many great podcasts now, not just not just Kevin's. This isn't just a pimp for scripts and scribes, but there are so many podcast episodes where you hear legitimate directors, screenwriters, showrunners and stuff, you know, talking about their origin stories, talking about things like Brendan just said. It's it we're in the a wealth of information, you know, in this this current climate and seek those out. I think a lot, which is why I think we focus more on sort of the business and industry side than purely craft, because there are a lot of resources out there for craft and fewer for the industry side. So, um, but there are some great ones. And I think, especially now, like Paul was saying, there are so many opportunities because of Zoom and because people are at home and not spending two hours every day commuting to a writer's room and this and that, that or even to meetings that and and with twitter and with there's i've seen so many uh free seminars and free uh i don't even know what you call them digital or uh conferencing sessions or whatever people are using that the clubhouse app to do uh drop-in uh sessions so and you can ask your questions i mean if you want to know more about the industry ask ask people that work in the industry you know um, but I do think that that's why this podcast has become a successful because we've talked to a lot of agents and managers and executive people who are on the business side as well as creatives uh, about the business side and about uh, breaking in not just, you know, character development and, and dialogue and things like that. So, um, but yeah, Paul's right and, and Brenda's right. I mean, there's so many resources out there for you to, to take advantage of now, especially, and hopefully it'll continue that way once people start going back, um, back to reality back to normal life back to pre-covid times if that happens um okay uh stanley curtis 
Uh, we hear this name a lot. Thanks for all the questions, Stanley. Every artist sometimes wants to be better than their favorite artist. How did you overcome your artistic anxiety? How did Paul overcome Nolan? <laughs> How did I overcome Nolan? Uh, My, because I made a reference to Christopher uh, Nolan. Yes, yeah. Oh no, I didn't. I mean, look, I, I, I was talking, and first of January, I was, I was in this chat with uh, a couple of screenwriters who are far more successful than than I'll probably ever be, Craig Mazin and Brian Koppelman. And we were all talking about the fact that even at that at this point in their careers, they still have imposter syndrome. You know, every every script you write, there's a point where you hit where you're like, what am I doing? This is garbage. I'm a fraud. You know, the, somebody's going to look behind the curtain and see the great and powerful Oz is nothing. Um, I... I didn't ever aspire like, oh, I want to be this person. They, you know, as far as working screenwriters, that probably Tony Gilroy is my is my pinnacle, my hero. He's the one that I feel like can do no wrong. I don't think like, God, I got to be better than Gilroy. I just am inspired by his work. I don't know how many times I've just read the screenplay to Michael Clayton just purely for inspiration. I, I don't think I could ever operate at that level, but it inspires me to try. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, that goes back to what we talked about earlier is, is just reading all the time and, and watching movies and TV series all the time. Yeah, I completely echo that. You know, for me, sort of the North Star biggest influence on my work are the Coen brothers and over, um, pandemic i've been watching a lot of preston sturgis he's a screwball comedy director from the 30s and 40s and you watch him and you're like oh like half the time the coens are just doing preston sturgis but with a different thing and you're like so they when they watch stuff they were like i could never do it as good as he did it and then you know you read preston sturgis's autobiography and he's saying like you know i was reading Chekhov coming up and i could never do it as good as Chekhov did it and you're like oh so it's all a continuum and you're just one person, one piece in that long process. And so I think once you understand art more holistically as a gestalt thing, you're not going to be saying like, damn, I got to be as good as that one person that inspired me to get into it. Mm -hmm. And what I'll say is having your, I don't want to say heroes, because I think hero worship is not necessarily the uh, the best thing, the best term, but those people whose work you tremendously respect as a goal, not necessarily like you think I'm going to be as good as, you know, uh, Tina Fey, or I'm going to be as good as uh, Aaron Sorkin or something like that. Uh, because I mean, how many of us will ever achieve that level, but it's something to reach for. And I think that that's helps for me. You to continue to for me I, I don't. And I mean, look again, everybody's different. There's no right answer or wrong answer to this. I don't, I don't ever see it as like something to try to reach for attain. If I read the Coen brothers, if I read Gilroy, if I read Shonda Rhimes, it, I'm just inspired, man. It's like the same as if I go to a museum and I look at Basquiat or I look at Pollock or, you know, I'm inspired. If I hear, you know, Miles Davis on the horn, I'm inspired. And, and that's, that's what it all is for me. Couldn't have said it better. That's the healthiest, I think, way to look at it, honestly. It, you know, the, the, the passion and the talent is uh, inspiring it, as opposed to something to like a finish line or a goal that you're trying to be better than someone. Um, I got, I got, this is 
two seconds on this. Yeah, and, yeah. and I recently, this is, and I won't go into why, but recently I've been watching skateboarding videos from the 1980s and I won't go into why, but Spike I'm Jones. inspired. Like it's, it's art. When I see Christian Hasoy or Steve Caballero or Tony Hawk or Randy Mullen, these guys, I'm inspired by what they were doing. They were creating, they were, they, they were artists. They were riding a skateboard in a swimming pool, but still like I'm inspired by that. And that it doesn't have to be, you can only get inspired by reading screenplays sure. or something or, or watching a movie. It's just, it's, you know, it's definitely craft, but it has to be art on some level or it's not going to be any good. Well, it's funny you mentioned skateboard videos because I, I remember seeing like early Spike Jones. That's how he got started his career is filming uh, skateboard videos. I think. Yeah. And then what was it? Amy Heckerling who yep. hired him, I think. But anyway, he was yeah shooting skateboard videos. That's how he got his start as a director. Yeah, he got and he says he got inspired by Stacey yeah. Peralta's videos of the Bones Brigade in 1984 and 85 watching just videos of these kids doing amazing things on skateboard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And lastly, uh, we're going to wrap it up. Raina Hardy wanted to clarify that she just mentioned Paw Patrol comment in response to questions about canceled characters. Um, <laughs> thank and, you. And she did want to go on to uh, say this was incredibly helpful. So thank you to both of you guys. And I want to reiterate that. Thank you guys for coming on. And do you have social media profiles that you want people to follow? We will have that in the description below. But if you want to give it out to people who may be listening uh, to the audio version of the podcast, what do you, where do you want people to go to find you guys? Uh, I'm at Brendan Gallagher on Twitter. Um, that's where to find me. And then from there, any stuff that comes up from writing somewhere or going on a podcast, I'll talk about it there. I am, uh, I'm no longer on Twitter. I was on there for a while, but I haven't been for a couple of years. The only social media now is I'm at p.guyot on Instagram. Um, and then if anyone's on Clubhouse, you can find me there. Um, but it's kind of turning into a dumpster fire. I may not be there much. Um, but, uh, and I want to read Brendan's stuff. I want to read your pre-Warrior Nun stuff, man. I'm, I'm so inspired. I, I, it sounds like your stuff is exactly what I would love. Oh, See, thanks so much, Paul. Really appreciate that. And this is how, again, sort of the, the meetings happen just organically. They, you know, Paul and Brendan are both great guys. We invited them together. They met. And now Paul's going to read Brendan and they're going to be doing a show pretty soon. <laughs> Um, but again, it wasn't just, you know, uh, hey, read my stuff, you know, a cold email. It was happened organically. Um, yeah, that's really quick on that before we sign off. Mm -hmm. How you map people is so important. Um, I, again, I, I, I did this room with my friend Jeff Thorne on Clubhouse, and we, we spoke for like four hours just sharing more stories and, and everything. And, you know, a bunch of people DM'd me on Instagram after that. And one guy literally his dm to me was and i'm not i'm not this isn't a paraphrase this is a quote send me your email and cell phone so i can hook you up with my script oh so that got deleted immediately right. <laughs> and and then there was another guy who didn't even approach me uh, um through a dm he was just in the room asking questions and he was so humble and so respectful and i could tell he was really struggling so I actually reached out to him and said, hey, if you need fresh eyes on your script, 
I'll, I'll read it. And he sent me a script and it was actually fantastic. So it, it really, how you, how you come at us people, you know, has a lot to do with, with the connections you make. Yeah. I hear that from reps all the time, writers feeling entitled or writers, writers feeling that they're above the uh, sort of level that they're at, you know, meaning that they, they feel like they have a bunch of heat on them when they've never really done anything. And so demanding the attention of a lit rep who doesn't have much time in and of itself based on all the clients and everything and the, the volume of people coming at them is just be a decent person, right? Be polite, be uh, thankful when you get the attention. If you don't get the attention you want or the response you want, be magnanimous, be polite, let it go. It's not personal. That's one of the big things. People take it very personally because it's, it's your craft. It's your art. And so when you get either uh, blown off or you get rejected or you get passed on, they take it very personal. And 99% of the time, it's not personal. It's just they didn't respond to it. Trust me, they want to make money. They want your script to be amazing. But if it's not for them, you know, don't take it personal because they're, the business is small. Everyone talks. Um, like we're going to talk about that person who came at you, who demanded your cell phone to send you a script. We're going to talk about this person afterwards. And you're not going to be able to get to any of us at that point. I'm just kidding. But no, people do talk, though. It's a small industry anyway. Um, uh, and Mark... Keegley is the last comment. Uh, says, thank all three of you for making this happen. Thank you guys for coming on today. It was a pleasure as always. I love both of you guys. Um, you're both fantastic. Um, so yeah, that's it. Thank you guys for watching this time. And our next episode will be next Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific time. So it's late enough so that our Australian friends can join in the fun next time. Uh, we will be doing an episode on getting your script pro ready with screenwriter Ian Shore, TV writer Andrew Zuber, and screenwriter and career coach Lee Jessup. And if you enjoyed this, we'll be doing this every Saturday at different time zones so that every so people in all around the world can watch because we know we have a lot of viewers and listeners in Europe and Australia. Um, so if you want to be kept in the loop when the next one is, uh, all of our links are below if you're watching on YouTube or on our website, scriptsandscribes.com. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Brendan. And thank you all for watching, and we will see you hopefully next Saturday.